This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from allcomic.com, episode 87. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramayasha, and today we've got a very special interview with the Eisner Award-nominated creator of the Merman graphic novel series, Joey Weiser, who's coming on the show to talk about his new book, Ghost Talk, now available from Oni Press. We talk to Joey about his experiences in the comics world, his formative experiences, his favorite comics, his favorite manga, his artistic process, his inspirations for Ghost Talk, and so much more. And it is an excellent interview. It's our first ever interview with a comic book creator, and I am so excited for you guys to listen to it. Yeah, this this was a really fun conversation with Joey. Um, I really enjoyed myself, uh, personally speaking. Mm-hmm. But before we get into our interview with Joey, we have a few things to catch you guys up on. Namely, the launch of the Manga Mavericks Patreon. We launched it just in the past two weeks, and we've already got some great patrons who have helped us reach our goal of covering our monthly hosting costs. So we need to give a special thanks, a special shout out to Aiden and to Rudolph. They really came through for us, and we really, really are grateful for the guys' support. And if you want to join them and help us out, contribute a little bit of funds towards the Manga Mavericks Patreon, you can. And we have some great rewards available to all our patrons. We have, at the $2 level, early access to all our podcasts. You can listen to them days before they go live, before they go public. But at the $5 tier, that's where you'll be getting a monthly bonus pod for patrons' ears only. And for the month of May, the topic has been decided by our patrons. What will that be? You'll see at a later date. You'll hear about it later. But every month, we're going to be releasing a new exclusive podcast to our Patreon. So if you want new content from us every month, you want just a little something extra, the $5 tier is where it's at. But that's not all, because at the $10 tier, you're going to get access to our show notes, which includes pretty much all the documents we create to help us with the show, including our links to all the news pieces we talk about, the list of all the questions we ask our guests on interviews, including... Joey Weiser. You can look at our notes for the Joey Weiser interview at the $10 level and so much more. Then at the $15 tier, you can get an explosion of more content. Dozens plus unreleased podcasts, over 90 plus bloopers cut out from the show. Just an incredible amount of content at the $15 tier. And then at finally, at the $20 tier, you can commission a podcast. You can suggest what the patron-only podcast will be. Or what at movies or manga fights you want to see us make. If you really want us to make an episode, the $20 tier is where it's at. But that's the Manga Matters Patreon. We've got a lot of great tiers and rewards set up for you. And we've got a lot of goals we want to accomplish this year. 
Once we reach $50 on the Patreon, we'll start up a monthly exclusive lifestyle audio blog for patrons to listen to us to just, you know, hear us chat about our lives and stuff. At the $200 mark, we'll start up a monthly exclusive podcast devoted to comics. And this is the most important goal we have, is that at the $260 uh, level, at once we get that much that's when we officially break even on the show because the 260 dollar a month level is the amount that we need to pay for all the books that we need to buy for the show this year including volumes of banana fish of chihai hafaru of 20th century boys so if you want to ensure we get to cover those on the show this year that's the level we need to reach this year in order to make that happen and then beyond that it's just more content, more stuff that we're excited to create and we'll be able to create once we've broken even on the show. So the $260 per month goal is where it's at. That's what we want to reach above anything else this year. And we have a lot of great incentives, a lot of great tiers for you guys to choose from. So head on over to the Manga Merits Patreon and help us out and help us continue to bring more awesome content and make the show even better. Yeah, the uh, the lifestyle audio blogs and um, Western Comics podcast are things that I really, 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 really want to do uh, for the Patreon. So I really hope we get to that goal at some point because uh, I would love to have the opportunity to talk about like other comics, you know, outside of manga. Like I already have ideas to talk about different like newspaper comic strips I grew up on as a kid. You know, other like e- even even a few like superhero comics here and there and. Just a, just a lot of different titles that, like, I've read, but, like, I just haven't had a chance to, like, talk about or a place to talk about them. So, like, um, I, have, I already have a lot of ideas for what I want to for what I want to cover in particular personally. So, uh, yeah, help us get to that $200 goal. Uh, and that is at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. So um, if you're interested in any of that, uh, go ahead and support us. We'd really appreciate it. Um, but, uh, just a few other things before we kind of get onto the interview, just two, two small things. Uh, one of them kind of relating to the interview, um, we do at one point mention Blue Flag and how it was, how basically the backlog of it, you know, isn't available on Manga Plus, but since we have recorded the interview, um, that has changed actually. Um, so if you go to Manga Plus uh, right now, you can read all of Blue Flag for free. Uh, that's all 40 plus chapters of the entire series. And, uh, we'll leave, we'll leave a link for that in the show notes for anybody who's interested. Uh, I definitely know that, you know, when Blue Flag basically, when, when all, when the backlog for Blue Flag became available, that I I saw a lot of people jump on that, including Lum, very fast. Um, I still need the, I still need to jump on that personally. But, uh, yeah, just, just want to make a note that, uh, in the time we've recorded that interview, that, all the series is available for people to enjoy. So just wanted to make that small edit. Uh, and then uh, also, not not really related to the interview, but we, we, we just thought we should let people know that, uh, you know, there's been another addition to the Shonen Jump app, and that being uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, uh, specifically the first three parts. So all of Battle Tendency, Phantom Blood, and Stardust Crusaders. I went kind of out of order there for for whatever reason. Uh, Basically, everything before Diamond is Unbreakable is available on the Shonen Jump app. And again, that's only $2 to basically uh, read whatever's been released here of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which, uh, again, is a pretty amazing deal. (laughs) So 
you know, if you don't have enough money for the Jejoniums, I mean, you know, th they're very, very nice releases, but they can, uh, some, sometimes they can, they might cut, they, they might seem a little expensive. Uh, you know, and you only have $2, you know, you can still read all of it, which is great. And uh, we'll also leave a link to that in the show notes. And uh, uh, one last tiny thing. Um, we are also going to be announcing the winner of our best girl poll. In case you don't remember, we uh, we we sort of uh, we sort of had a discussion of a couple weeks ago on our We Never Learn Q and A extravaganza episode about uh, who is best girl, and uh, we said we would put up a straw poll. We did, and we have the results of that. But I think we're going to save that for the end of the episode. Uh, keep keep you guys waiting for that. Uh, give you an excuse to listen to the whole episode. Needless to say, I will have words about this. So definitely, you're going to want to hear all of my thoughts on the uh, travesty that happened in this poll. So <laughs> you will have to uh, wait till the end of the episode to hear that. But yeah, there's going to be a discussion for sure. Uh, but for now, I think we should get in with our interview with Joey. All right. Uh, and now we are at the part of the show you've all been waiting for. Uh, we are here with our very special guest, Joey Weiser, uh, who is the author of a ton of different comics. Uh, one of them being Merman and uh, Ghost Hog, as we're going to be talking about on the show today a little bit. Uh, Joey, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you on, Joey. You're the first comics artist we've had on the show, and it's really cool. We're a show that talks about comics a lot, but we've never had a chance to talk about the artist who's made one before. So this is a really awesome experience and opportunity. Yeah, I know. Early on when I was talking to you a bit about coming on the show, I I am originally envisioned like if you had like a subject that it seemed like I knew about like a series I liked or something I could come on and talk. But to actually talk about my work and talk about manga, that sounds really fun to me. Yeah. Uh, in particular, I've been wanting to I've, I've been kind of like eyeing you to come on the show for a while. Like I've always kind of had this idea in the back of my mind, like, you know, Joey seems like a cool guy. We both follow each other on Twitter. <laughs> you know, we talk every once in a while, and I've been interested in your works for ever since I first heard you on the One Piece podcast um, and whatnot. You know, I've always been interested in checking it out. And, you know, now I guess this this year was as good a time as any to kind of start checking out your comics, you know, when you uh, you sort of told us that, hey, you know, you got a new you got a new comic coming out called Ghost Hog. And you kind of wanted to basically, you know, give us an opportunity to kind of talk about, you know, that title is, along with all your other works. I figured, you know, this year might as well be the year. So yeah, totally. And I've got like a whole series behind me now that you could uh, read and not just be stuck in on volume four or something like that. So yeah. And it was a pleasure to read that series from beginning to end. I was going to pace myself reading a book a day. But when I started volume two, I read all the way through the end of volume five, <laughs> because the cliffhangers at the end of each book were just so good that I was like, oh, my God, I have to read the next book. Uh, just one more book, one more book and before I do it. I read the entire series in a night. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, the, the Merman books occasionally would catch some guff from like, I don't know, the kind of kidlit uh, reviewers who would say, like, the story's not complete. The story's not complete. And I was like, yeah, that's what's fun about it, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I just really, that was the, that's the only series I've ever done. And so I was especially excited about that idea of being able to play with cliffhangers and stuff. Mm -hmm. 
And I think you did it really well because, like I said, it really wanted to make me keep going. And I can only imagine how agonizing it must have been for young readers to have to wait a year between each <laughs> book and like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? Yeah, is that kind of long form storytelling between your books, ending your books on cliffhangers, do you think that might have been inspired by your uh, love of long reading manga titles in any way? Oh, totally. Yeah. I had done two books previous uh, to Merman called The Ride Home and Caveman in Space. And Merman really came from kind of analyzing what I like about manga and kind of rediscovering my love of manga after kind of putting it aside for a little bit. And like, that's one of the things that I liked about it. And it did sort of then eventually kind of occur to me that it is a little frustrating for readers to have to wait. And I felt a lot of pressure uh, to get those books out on about one a year basis because I knew people were waiting to read the rest of the story. And unlike manga, it wasn't coming out in like weekly chunks or monthly chunks for them to like read a little bit. They had to wait uh, essentially for the Tonka Bond to come out, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's that's really interesting uh, to hear that, uh, you know, you, you were kind of out of manga fandom for a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm, I might ask you about that a little later in the show, but uh, I think we should just kind of start by talking about uh, kind of your background in comics, you know. Uh, maybe kind of from the beginning and kind of work your way up uh, just kind of to tell us about what it's what what it's been like to kind of you know start making your own stuff and maybe kind of uh, going through some of your um, some of your bibliography with us and our listeners sure sure I mean the sort of like super uh, we can dig into this more as we go along but like the kind of brief overview is that when I was real young I was really into comic strips and then I was kind of eventually a superhero comics reader, but those didn't seem like the kind of books I wanted to make. I thought even as a kid, like I was more of a comic strip. I, I liked the humor and stuff. And then and then I found independent comics and manga, and those kind of seemed to kind of fuse those two worlds of the sort of humor and, and fun characters with the long-form storytelling that I liked from superhero comics. And then that so, sort of showed me the kind of work that I wanted to make. And then I went to the Savannah College of Art and Design, which is a college in Savannah, Georgia, that uh, has a specific comics program. They call it sequential art. And um, there I got exposed to a lots of different kinds of work. And that that's sort of the time period where I uh, kind of put manga aside a little bit because I decided I really wanted to focus on learning about like independent comics and sort of more literary comics and kids comics and things like that. Uh, with the exclusion of some like long running shonen that I was like kind of keeping up with as things went on, like One Piece and Naruto. And then my first published work was in 2004, a short story in an anthology, as well as making mini comics and things like that. And then my first book was after I had graduated uh, from college. Uh, I graduated in 2005, and my first graphic novel came out in 2007, and that was The Ride Home. Um, and then the Merman books started coming out. I started those as mini comics in 2010. And in 2012, I think is where the first volume came out. And then Ghost Hog, as we mentioned, is coming out this year. Mm -hmm. That's an incredible. You, your career now spans 15 long years. So that's quite a journey. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Occasionally, people will kind of see me at a convention or something and, and have never seen my work before. And they're kind of blown away by how much there is. And they're like, how how have I never seen this before? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I've been I've been trying to get the word out, but um, yeah. But you know, the Merman series I did essentially over a span of seven years to do those five books. 
And that's incredible that, you know, you published a five book series and to get one out at one a year, that must have been quite the workload. Yeah, it was. Um, I would push myself uh, pretty hard, especially during the coloring and kind of towards the end of the process when deadlines were kind of getting closer and closer. Um, and with Oni, uh, Oni Press is my publisher and they're small press. So they're kind of on the big side of small press. Um, so they're pretty flexible with a lot of things. Um, and so scheduling is basically kind of you know, they give you guidelines, like if you want it out at this time, it needs to be done at this time. But they weren't exactly breathing down my neck. Um, but it was self-imposed to some extent, because like I said, I felt a lot of pressure to keep those readers, um, you know, to give them the rest of the story. And so that's one of the reasons why Ghost Hog now is a self-contained book, is that after doing that for a few years, I was really interested in being able to kind of return to being able to give somebody one book and being like, here's the whole thing. And I can kind of take a little bit more time with it. It took me about two years to do that instead of the one a year pace. Um, and I'm probably going to do about that for the next book, too, like about two years. I, yeah, I have to imagine after a long project, it's nice to go back to shorter, more self-contained works. It gives you more reading room and flexibility. But it's also nice to hear that Omni Press was such a flexible publisher that you know they weren't like forcing you to meet like these strenuous deadlines in the same way like uh, a, mo- a japanese manga publisher like shueisha would oh yeah yeah no nothing like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah when i hear what those manga artists go through i am totally blown away and just feel exhausted for them <laughs> What's your process like in terms of, so how does a typical day start for you when you're working on a page of one of your graphic novels? Mm, Well, yeah, it kind of depends. You know, I write it all at once and then draw it all at once and then color it all at once kind of as different steps. So it kind of depends on what stage I'm at. But if I'm like, um, let's say it's a drawing week, um, I tend to, um, I pencil and then ink on paper traditionally. And I tend to have kind of like, small chunks that I'm working on all at once. So I'll say like, uh, depending on my schedule now, I need to do, you know, six pages a week or eight pages a week or something like that of pencils and inks. And so I will pencil them all in one chunk that's sort of seven pages. And then um, that usually takes me a few days. And then I'll ink them and I can usually ink uh, pretty comfortably two pages a day. Um, whereas the penciling is a bit faster where I can do, you know, four or five in a day, depending on how it goes. Occasionally you get those like crazy pages that you have to just sort of give yourself over to like, all I'm going to be doing is working on this one page because it's a big splash page or something like that. Like the page in Mohim Wana Merman with all the fish in the swimming pool. Oh with yeah. That was so <laughs> me- meticulously detailed. I can't imagine how long that took. Yeah, that was definitely one of those examples where I was just kind of like, all I'm going to be doing today is drawing fish. And then like, (laughs) and then after that was put behind me, eventually I'm coloring the book and I'm like, oh, God, here it comes again. Now I have to color all these. (laughs) I I also imagine it was it was probably the same amount of work when it came to uh, because I I thought you had a lot of really good like spreads in the last volume of Merman, a lot of really good uh, double page spreads in there. Yeah. And that was kind of new for me. Like I... Uh, with each book, I kind of expand a little bit of like, uh, like working with different kinds of compositions and things like that, that I've never done before. And like, I had never done two page spreads before. And I wanted that for Merman book five, because the fifth book is this sort of like, 
big, you know, culmination of everything. And there's like, you know, a bat, a huge battle and stuff. So I really wanted the scope to look really big. And so I opened it up to doing these two page spreads and that in itself gave me a whole new challenges of like, what do I do? Do I tape two pages together? Do I, you know, and then how do I scan that in? Cause I have a small scanner and I draw on really big pages. And, uh, so yeah, yeah, it was an interesting learning curve. And then, and then, uh, it kind of carried over into ghost hog. I, I learned different ways to use two page spreads and, and, um, I feel like I kind of really opened up my compositions a lot, um, for the next book. Yeah. A, a lot, a lot of your spreads, I, I don't know if it's intentional, but they, cause I mean, I, I know you're a huge one piece fan, but like they, they felt very, I don't know how else to say this. They felt very Oda to me somehow, like like very like <laughs> very awesome. epic in scale and whatnot. And I could I, I feel like I could tell it's probably what you were going for in some sense. Yeah, I'd say that One Piece isn't something that I've like sat down and like intentionally studied, but I've soaked so much of it in over the years that yeah, it's definitely in there. It's you know Oda's one of my favorite artists, and One Piece is definitely one of my favorite comics of all time. So. Um, yeah, I, I really admire he, the way he does things. And I'm sure that I, that, that has made its way into my work in big ways. <laughs> mm-hmm. And let's take it back to when you started getting into One Piece and when you were starting to get into manga in general, where did it all start to you and what drew you to manga initially? Hmm. Yeah, that, that goes back farther than One Piece. Um, so I was, like I said, I was a big superhero reader, specifically like X-Men comics. And in the 90s, let's see, I think I was in maybe like sixth grade or something, um, was when um, Joe Matarera was an artist on the X-Men comics. And he's a dude that has like very manga-influenced style. And it really like, but it was kind of like a, a very early example of that. Up until then, people weren't really talking about manga that much. Um and I really was blown away by it because it was like very fun and cartoony, but it was still like the X-Men kinds of stories that I loved. And so I and around that same time, then Wizard Magazine started having articles like comics from Japan and all this stuff like that. And um, and I discovered anime and things like that. And so over the years, like I, you know, at that time, uh, manga was still being published in like comic book issues, like the same way that X-Men comics are published and stuff. So I just did that sort of same thing that I was doing with X-Men where I just dig through back issue bins and find stuff that looked cool. So I'd say the first manga I read was like, Oh My Goddess and Gunsmith Cats. And I was a big Battle Angel Alita fan. That's probably the first one that I got like really, really into that I started following monthly as they were putting out the issues and buying the collections and stuff like that. Um, Nice. Yeah. And I um, so at that time, we didn't have Internet in my house, but my dad had it at his office. So I would like make him take me to the office on weekends, which is an hour away from where we lived. (laughs) So in retrospect, (laughs) I feel bad about that. But like I would go and I'd use the Internet to just like look up pictures of manga, like and just be like, what is this? And learn about new things. And I got pretty into Dragon Ball just by looking at images like it wasn't on TV yet. Um, and that led me eventually to finding fan subs and then eventually to like importing manga volumes from Japan and learning Japanese uh, in high school. And Dragon Ball is one of the few manga that I've actually read uh, front to back in Japanese because it's not that hard to read, <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, and other series like Shaman King and Butsuzone has uh, 
Takei's previous series, like I tried to read in Japanese and I did like, okay, kind of struggling through them. But yeah, and, and a few other things here and there. And eventually led to like a short exchange in Japan and stuff like that. And that and that kind of stuff like really broke it open. But yeah, th- that's sort of the early, early days of manga for me. And then and then in college, let's see, when did I find? So One Piece, I think I initially found uh, through VHS fan subs also, actually, um, because somebody who I was getting fan subs th- through, like I I'd sort of gotten all of Dragon Ball Z and I was looking for new things to get into. And they were like, what's new in Japan? Um Oh, you know what it is? Actually, I go back on that. Uh, it was through reading Japanese issues of Shonen Jump because my dad would occasionally take um, business trips to Japan and ask me if there was anything that I, that he could get for me. And I asked him that I wanted to read an issue of Shonen Jump because I was so into Dragon Ball. And at this point, Dragon Ball was like way over. But I knew that it had been in this magazine called Shonen Jump. So I was like, find Shonen Jump. And so he like told the the businessmen that he was working with that that's what he was looking for. And so from then on, whenever he'd go to Japan, uh, they'd always have a few issues of Shonen Jump waiting for him and he'd bring them back uh, to me. Um, nice. Yeah, which is really cool. And that's where I first saw uh, this sort of new crop of manga like Shaman King and One Piece. And um, all I really knew about One Piece is that it was popular um, and that it was a pirate manga. I didn't really know the extent to which it was popular, but I could tell because it was on the cover a lot of those issues. And then when I eventually went to Japan in 2000, it was everywhere. It was on TV at that point. And like the kid that I was staying with, uh, that I was staying with his family was kind of like, he was a high school kid. And he was like, I'm not really that into manga anymore, but I like this. And he had like a whole shelf of One Piece (laughs) books. And um, so I was like, man, this is big stuff, but, um, I didn't really get super into it until I got into college and I started, um, reading scanlations online, you know, cause that was the only way it was available. And I followed it that way for years. I subscribed to like the first year of Shonen Jump, but it was kind of a little in America, but it was like a little weird cause I'd already read all that stuff. And, you know, I was kind of like, why am I doing, you know, what is this? You know, it wasn't quite working for me because at that point I was still, you know, (laughs) a filthy pirate. (laughs) And um, so, you know, so I read it for years and years. That that's definitely how I like uh, in that period where I stopped reading manga and was kind of a little embarrassed, I'd say, about being like an anime and manga fan because it had a little bit of a stigma in my art school uh, to some extent. Um, I still did sort of secretly every week read the like crappy scanlations and their weird super bad quality like if you think the ones now are bad the ones in the early 2000s were like total garbage but um (laughs) and that's how i kept up with that stuff and then years later ended up buying the whole viz run and and now i keep up with it legally and stuff Nice. It's interesting to hear that your art school had, like the people at your art school had such a poor opinion of manga and were discouraging of people who are into manga. Yeah, I wouldn't put that like entirely on the school. I would say that there were like different camps that kind of formed within art school. There were like the mainstream superhero kids. There were the manga and anime kids. Uh, But I wanted to be in with the like indie comics crowd. I wanted to be that's the sort of like, you know, <laughs> to some extent, the hipster crowd or whatever. Like, I, I really wanted to be seen as somebody who uh, wasn't like a goofy 
girl with cat ears or something, you know, like uh, <laughs> running around and squeeing and stuff. Because that's <laughs> totally where anime <laughs> fandom was at that time period. Yep. And that was definitely the perception of it. <laughs> so I, I really like and and, you know, I to some extent am a little ashamed of how much I like pushed it aside. But that was that's just what I did. And and then it was kind of after college, I started kind of slowly admitting like, oh, I'm into this thing called One Piece. It's it's pretty good, I guess. And then like uh, and then eventually kind of started rediscovering what was out there and watching anime again and and then it kind of came back with a vengeance <laughs> and now it's kind of my main area of interest i i feel like that's just kind of a rite of passage like we we all go through that thing where it's like you know the the whatever this thing we like or whatever cartoons anime whatever is like seen as like childish or immature and it's like oh but i want to be like more adult i i i'm not i'm you're like we, we all feel like we're not allowed to like cartoons and stuff after a certain age but then like you know once you get older and you know, you start to realize, you know, I'm not, in, I'm not going to be in school forever. I'm not going to have to impress, you know, all sorts of people forever. Like I could just like what I like and all that kind of thing. Yeah, totally. Most definitely. Though I will say at my art school at SVA, uh, when I was there, uh, there was no stigma for being into anime. Uh, pretty much everyone was. <laughs> so that was nice. That's good. And you, you do hear these conversations about like um, art teachers discouraging anime and manga and i definitely one of my favorite professors was known as being a guy who hated anime and manga but like i think really what he was getting at was like you know find your own style and don't just copy something because it'll be flat you know um you have to really internalize something before you can make it look uh authentic Mm -hmm. um and so and that gets kind of like confused with a student that's just kind of like but I, you know, all I want to do is draw, you know, my favorite characters, you know, which is fine. But it's it's a different thing than creating your own thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, can, I can see the difference between those things. But the current generation of artists working in comics animation, a lot of them are definitely inspired by anime and manga. But they've definitely uh, used their inspirations and incorporated them into their own styles with their own personal tastes. I feel that about your work as well, Joey. Oh, thank I you. think there are like very clear influences from Japanese culture and from anime and manga in your work. But like it is your own distinct style that is just so enjoyable and so unique from anything else mm-hmm. yeah thank you i don't i um so i have friends that have sort of consciously crafted a style and and will even change that from project to project but i don't feel that i have that much control over it i always say that my art style is kind of like handwriting it's just kind of the way it comes out um and that comes from repetition and that does come from at a young age copying and stuff but it really is a synthesis of like comic strips and manga and cartoons I watched on TV and, and everything kind of jumbled up together. Um, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now that you mention it, I, I can, I can totally feel that that sort of like newspaper comic strip sort of quality in your art there. Yeah. For years I did a, um, uh, for about three years, I think I did a, uh, web comic called monster Isle and that was, uh, it's like a Kaiju inspired comic and, um, that was really my chance to kind of like play out my fantasy of being a newspaper cartoonist. <laughs> and, and that it, was published in a local paper. That's correct. Yeah, it was it was published uh, in the sort of um, arts and entertainment section of uh, the newspaper here in Athens, Georgia, where I live um, until there was an editorial change up and uh, the new people in charge didn't realize I was being paid for it. 
And so they stopped paying me. And so I stopped giving them comics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they were like, we thought we were just giving you free advertisement for your website. I was like, I don't need advertisement for my website. (laughs) Oh, no. Work work for exposure? Oh, God damn it. Not again. Yeah. But, you know. Uh, the newspapers aren't doing so hot, so I know they don't have a lot of money to throw around like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm trying to find my old tweet here from when I was reading like volumes one and two of Merman. Uh, I, I don't I don't I forget if you saw it, Joey, but I think I tweeted out. I, I was tweeting out about Merman a little bit, and I I had wrote that Merman reminded me of like a combination of, of like peanuts and Dragon Ball almost. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I'd say my sort of like big. Uh... My kind of big three inspirations that I cite are Charles Schultz, Akira Toriyama, and Jeff Smith, uh, the author of Bone. And those are those kind of three areas of my of interest kind of coming together and creating my comics for sure. Oh, wow. I, I didn't know I hit the nail on the head there so accurately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I love uh, Peanuts. That's, that's one that I kind of came to later in life. When I was younger, I really loved Calvin and Hobbes, and I still love Calvin and Hobbes. And and you know, and Bloom County and Foxtrot and and different various stuff, and Peanuts didn't completely appeal to me. Besides liking watching some of the cartoons and stuff, and then I kind of rediscovered it in college uh, when Fantagraphics started republishing the um, the complete run, and it just really hit me like a ton of bricks, like how much I loved those comics and how much uh, Charles Schultz seemed to really love his characters and feel for them in a way that uh, I don't think comes across in a lot of comic strips. Mm -hmm. Like there's definitely a lot of empathy and love for his characters in the peanut strips that, you know, makes him really endearing. Even when the characters are expressing very depressed or cynical observations about life. Totally. Totally. And I kind of feel that a lot of your character designs, they sort of remind me of early Schultz peanut strips, and especially like in terms of like the round oval-ish head of Mervin. It reminds me of very early Charlie Brown. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I like that like super old peanut style. It's it's maybe a little more stiff, but it, it like, it looks really good to me. Mm-hmm. But on the subject of one of your other inspirations, Akira Toriyama, what draws you to his work? Like, what about his art do you find really appealing and inspiring? And what are some influences of his style that you can see in your own work? Yeah, he's got a, he's got an appeal that's kind of hard to put your finger on sometimes. Like, there's um, a quality that I've never been able to completely explain that it just looks like there's an ease to his drawings. Like, it looks like he... Um, and, and this is the way he kind of categorizes it in interviews and stuff. Like, uh, like he just kind of like doodles and it comes out perfect looking, you know, uh, and it doesn't look, um, overworked or, or stiff. Like everything's very lively and like, just, it has an ease to it that I really admire. And his storytelling also is very breezy and, uh, casual in a way that's really interesting. And I thought a lot about like, you know, I love Dr. Slump and uh, Dragon Ball and, and all of his work. And I've been kind of thought about his work a lot. And and the thing that really occurred to me is that I think the reason this is my <laughs> little pet theory, the reason why he's such a great um, action and adventure artist is because he's a humor artist and he's using these same 
principles of setup, punchline, and giving someone something that they don't expect, uh, only with serious storytelling. And he's using that those same kind of principles. And so I, I think about that a lot, and, and I'm starting to try to uh, incorporate that in my work, too, is try to think about stuff that maybe you wouldn't expect, and think of it almost like a joke, even if it's like serious storytelling. I definitely recognize that in Merman that there it seems very much inspired from gag manga action in terms of like how you depict an action scene and like there is a punchline to every uh, beat of your action sequences and I think you play with those scenes in very fun and creative ways like one particular moment I love is uh, the fight Merman has with the paranormal activity club in volume 2 against a like giant uh, mishmash robot that they created out of a bathtub and refrigerator (laughs) and all that and I love that there's one particular panel where Merman is like throwing a punch down is like there's this giant dome sound effect and it's kind of like he's throwing the sound effect into the robot <laughs> and i just love that image so much and i think you play with sound effects in fun ways that also reminds me a lot of toriyama too mm-hmm, definitely. awesome thank you yeah I, I think some of that also comes from like trying not to take myself too seriously and in writing these comics whenever i start to feel like i'm getting a little too serious kind of being like, you know, a part of me being like, oh, who do you think you are? You know, this is a goofy comic. Do make a joke. <laughs> <laughs> and so so a lot of times that that uh, sprinkles humor and stuff into the action. And that's something that I, I that's a big thing with manga. I think that really appealed to me is that I finally found something that were these kind of serious uh, story arcs and things that I could follow with characters that I cared about. But there's like just so much humor in them. Even the serious comics, you know, or like Tezuka is also a guy who I love. Like Astro Boy is one of my favorite comics. And like that dude just will put jokes in areas where it's wholly inappropriate, (laughs) (laughs) but it, it makes them fun to read still, you know. Oh, most definitely. And you also... Uh, before we move on to like some of the other inspirations, uh, I also want to mention in terms of Toriyama, you uh, really did a awesome tribute to Dragon Ball in your uh, daily Dragon Ball drawing project that you did uh, in from November 2014. For about a year, you drew over 300 characters from the Dragon Ball manga in chronological order. I wanted to ask like what that project was like and like. How what you might have uh, learned about like Toriyama's character design sensibilities, and then like your own character design sensibilities in the process of doing that project? Yeah, so that project came from after I had ended Monster Isle, and I was working on the Merman graphic novels primarily. Um, I kind of wanted something to put out online on a regular basis because I missed that kind of feedback and stuff. And Dragon Ball had a big anniversary coming up. At this point, I don't remember. What was the 25th anniversary? I can't. 30th anniversary. 30th anniversary. And this okay. year will be the 35th. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, so I was like, I should do a Dragon Ball thing. And, you know, I'm actually not like, I don't draw a lot of fan art, like as much of it as I'm a huge fan of things. It just kind of never occurs to me some for some reason besides doing commissions and stuff. Um, and so I was like, I haven't really done much Dragon Ball stuff. And I was like, well, what can I do? What can I do? And then I just came up with this idea of <laughs> daily Dragon Ball, of d- drawing a character every single day. And it kind of became more of about like the project itself than the individual drawings of just kind of like 
uh, making sure that I drew every single day. And um, I would just kind of flip through the manga and find the next character that I hadn't seen before and draw them. Or sometimes the same character only like grown up a few years or something like that. And yeah, it was really uh, gratifying. Um, Occasionally, yeah, Toriyama's, it really gave me a respect for Toriyama's designs because sometimes characters, it felt almost like I couldn't screw them up. Like I would draw them and it'd be like, man, this looks good. And I was like, well, no wonder it looks good because they're just so well, you know, designed. Um, Mm -hmm. And then um, occasionally I would also sort of start to learn his shortcuts and stuff. Like um, all of his characters have the exact same nose or you get these kind of very typical like Toriyama boots or belts uh, that you see a lot. And it's just sort of shorthand that, that every artist has, uh, but it, it definitely like brought that to, uh, <laughs> to the front for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was a really fun project. And occasionally I have people asking uh, if I'm going to do more. And, and sometimes I think about like going through super or something, but I'd need maybe an art book or something that would categorize all the characters. So it'd be easy for me to go through without having to like skim through the show or something. Especially since that'd be quite an extensive project, considering that there are 80 characters in the Tournament of Power alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I guess I could use the super manga as a guide, um, because I like like that. uh, I collect that, too. I like Toyotaro's art uh, pretty well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah, so I I like the super manga quite a bit. Um, I was just reading it today. I think a new chapter just dropped, so. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I gotta read that later. I hear that Majin Buu finally gets his due! (laughs) Oh, I've been waiting for so long. But, yeah, I love your Daily Dragon Ball project. That's how I discovered you, seeing your uh, art on Twitter from that. And I was wondering, like, what were maybe some of the harder characters you had to draw in the process of doing that project? Did you, like, get to sell and it was like, oh, God, I have to draw so many dots! (laughs) (laughs) Cell's not too bad. I mean, I didn't have to draw him over and over again, those dots, yeah. Um, uh, I had problems with some of his more kind of sleek designs, like Frieza was kind of tough for me, because you gotta kind of get him just right, or else he won't look right. And, um... Also, the um, the women characters were often a little challenging for me because I just had to sort of accept that they weren't going to look like Toriyama drew them because he draws the, those big watery anime eyes and I draw kind of more like little dot eyes like Tintin or something. Um, and so I was just kind of like, okay, how do I kind of like reconcile this and just draw a character that looks like I drew it, but it is, you know, a lady that's wearing all the same clothes or something like that. Um, and yeah, so sometimes that would be a little tough. And and Goku was kind of tough. Like, um, I've never really been able to convincingly draw Goku's hair. Like, it doesn't exactly work in my style. And every time I've tried to draw it, it looks just kind of like a weird stiff helmet that gets dropped on a character's head that doesn't quite <laughs> fit. So I had to just be like, okay, I'm going to draw kind of the spirit of it. He's got kind of loose, messy hair. And I have the, like, the spikes, you know, in their correct spots or whatever. But they're maybe a little rounder, a little uh, looser, softer looking because uh, I can't quite draw them the way that Toriyama draws them. Yeah, I mean, the Goku's hair is something that I've had trouble drawing myself in my own, like, trying to draw Dragon Ball characters. It's like, yeah, it's deceptively, seems deceptively simple, but there's just, so, you gotta get it just right, otherwise it doesn't look right. Mm-hmm. But that's really cool. And you also did another, uh, like, kind of daily fan art project for kaiju monsters, where you uh, drew a kaiju monster from A to Z uh, before. I remember seeing that going through Monster Isle. 
Yeah, that was um, that was part of a weekly drawing project. So that was before uh, Daily Dragon Ball. So that was sort of kind of informing that idea. Um, there was this online drawing project several years ago called Alpha Beasts, where um, artists were encouraged, like every week was a different letter of the alphabet, and you were supposed to draw a fictional creature of some sort, but it had to be like from something, not just like, I'm making up a creature on my own. Um, and so you, you got a lot of like fantasy novel animals or things from movies and stuff. And one of the organizers actually called me out because he knew I was a big kaiju fan and was like, I bet Joey could do an all kaiju alphabet. And I was like, oh, maybe I could. And that definitely required some Wikipedia <laughs> to uh, <laughs> fill in some of those letters. Um, but um, yeah, they're all Godzilla, Gamera or Ultraman monsters. And that was really fun. I That's another thing that I occasionally think about returning to because uh, there's plenty, uh, with the exception of some letters that were a little more tricky to find. I think for S, you had to do Space Godzilla. Oh, yeah. Well, I did that on... There's a lot of S ones. I'd say the, the, along those lines, though, F was a big cop-out. Like, I had to do Fire Rodan <laughs> yeah. uh, because F is like... It's, it seems like, of course, like Q is a challenge and X is a challenge, but like... Uh, F is a, a letter that we think of as being fairly common, but in Japanese, it's not really uh, that common of a, a sound. So there really weren't any any monsters I could find whose name started with F. But there's like a form of Rodan after he like heats up and goes in the magma that he's like called Fire Rodan. So I was like, eh, that's close enough. <laughs> it works. It's like a different form of Rodan. Yeah, yeah. But I thought all those illustrations were super cool. And also, I really like that your work is so inspired by um, monsters, especially like kaiju, and you really like Ultraman and stuff like that. And uh, I like what appeals to you about that stuff. And like, uh, even Merman is kind of like about a monster creature. And I feel like all your series are like, they're about like either cool little monsters or supernatural creatures like what draws you to those kind of stories Mm, yeah you know even as a kid i didn't like i had no interest in humans like it was all like cartoon animals and monsters and creatures and robots like um i was definitely like a kid of the 80s so i loved like transformers and he-man and ninja turtles but i had like no time for gi joe because it was just like people (laughs) And uh, it's just the way my brain works, I guess. I don't know. But I, uh, yeah, and and that's where I first encountered Godzilla. I was a big, like, Godzilla fan as a kid. So there's, like, definitely an element of nostalgia there uh, where I watched tons of Godzilla movies as a kid. And I think that's informed my uh, current kind of obsession with 70s, (laughs) 60s and 70s uh, live-action Japanese movies because they're set in a very similar time period, even if they're, like, more serious or whatever, to those Godzilla movies. Um, But, yeah, so I I just – I think that uh, creatures are very fun uh, to draw and to think about. So that's my main thing. And and with Ghost Hog, I've almost entirely eliminated human characters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, with the exception of – like the hunters family and then some stray villagers it is all about anthropomorphic animals and then these uh demons and forest creatures mm-hmm. yeah and it's set in a totally fictional world now like merman takes place more or less in our world with this sort of idea that there's a secret world underwater of fish creatures and so you get those sort of like um you know fish out of water har har stories <laughs> 
And, you know, that's fun. Uh, but it also requires a certain amount of like rules you have to follow and finding reference for things to make sure that they look right and stuff like that, even though I'm pretty loose on the research side of things. But uh, with Ghost Hog, I was like, if I just create like a completely fictional world, you know, kind of going back to Dragon Ball, like a, a like a Dragon Ball type world, like that's a thing that I admire about Toriyama is he can just do whatever he wants, you know, mm-hmm. and the same thing with Oda. Um, they create the rules rather than having to follow rules. And so I was like, well, I'm going to try that out with Ghost Hog and just kind of create this whole new world where there's some human characters that grounds it a little bit, but it really um, takes place uh, in this kind of like fantasy world. This maybe a little like medieval ancient kind of seeming. Yeah, the, the story to me for as long as we're talking about Ghost Hog felt very like it, it it felt it felt like something I would see in like a Miyazaki movie almost. Mm. Yeah, I've I've um ever since actually this is an idea that originally struck me in college, not Ghost Hog, but I've been I've been really fascinated with this idea of like creating a fake adaptation of a folktale. Like um so drag going back to Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball's loosely based on Journey to the West, right? And then you'll occasionally find these stories that are like loosely based off of uh, Alice in Wonderland or or something like that or, or um, you know, who knows, Johnny Appleseed or some sort of like folktale. And I've always thought that that's really cool. And I've been sort of into this idea of like, well, what if I created a story that if you didn't know any better, you'd be like, this seems like it's an adaptation of an old folktale from like another culture or another time period that I'm just not familiar with. Um, and so I think I finally struck that with Ghost Hog where I tried to kind of create this world that feels like a folktale that feels like maybe you're just not super familiar with what it's drawing upon um and and that's kind of where i started with it i mean it certainly got me because i i just kind of assumed you were drawing from something and like specifically in particular yeah i mean i think that there is a lot of like kind of like already people are kind of pointing out a lot of like asian culture influences and stuff and that just comes from my you know uh love of manga and 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 asian movies and things like that um but i tried anytime i i feel that starting to become like too prominent i kind of pull it back a little bit because i i am uh conscious of of being like appropriative and stuff like that um so i i trying to make it like not rooted in any one like world or culture um and and just sort of a fantasy world Definitely, though there, are, I definitely can see a lot of those influences still with like Mava. I he's so reminiscent of an Oni, and that immediately struck me when I first saw him. And only the what's different is like the horns are like they're kind of more going off in his size, a lot bigger. But like, yeah, I just like the depiction of him with kind of like his like rag kind of wrapped around him and then like how hairy he is the the, sh- the chipped shape of his toenails and fingernails like it's all screamed only to me oh cool yeah that's interesting yeah i i think i just wanted to make him kind of big and gross like <laughs> um you know I, I came up with this idea of, of there being this sort of uh demon trapped inside a mountain and i liked the idea of him being sort of like lava themed or something uh so i did a few different kinds of character designs of him looking more or less human 
And I just started really kind of getting into these ones that were making me laugh and also making me cringe a little bit that just kind of looks like a kind of playing to some extent, I think, on my own, like <laughs> insecurities and, and things about like body horror type issues of being like, yeah, he's really fat and hairy and, and you know, whatever, you know, <laughs> not to, you know, shame anybody, but like I, I just like wanted him to be kind of uncomfortable looking uh, and, and make you feel kind of gross uh, looking at him. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's definitely a gross dude in terms of how he bosses people around while slovenly sitting on his throne, doing no work, just <laughs> demanding and ordering other people to do stuff for him. Like, you know, he is a great contrast for the lesson Truff has to learn in terms of selflessness because he's a pure embodiment of selfishness. Oh, cool. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I guess, um, uh, Joey, can you tell us a little bit of like, you know, just for anyone listening, what Ghost Hog is actually about? Sure. So Ghost Hog is about the ghost of a young boar named Truff. And she has been recently shot down by a hunter and, and, and kind of haunts this area where uh, she had been killed. And um, it's the the story is about her grappling with becoming a ghost and and uh, feelings of like obsession on revenge against the hunter. Um, but then also there's this other side plot where there is also this like imprisoned demon that we've been mentioning Mava who has been capturing animals from around the mountain and is trying to enslave them to, to get him to escape. And so she's kind of torn between, um, <clears throat> these feelings of like intense obsession with wanting to get revenge and, wanting to rescue her friends and family from this demon um so so something i was kind of curious about because uh you know i i think it's safe to say that merman was uh was a kid's comic like you know it was kind of for younger readers but you know anyone you know can read it and get something out of it um so what, what kind of audience did you have in mind when um when creating ghost hog because it, it really felt like to me because uh ghost hog really deals with these like subjects that should come off like very heavy and depressing such as like you know death and revenge and whatnot but i think you i think you explore those topics in a way that like like if a kid were to read them that like i think you know they could probably they they come off not not as heavy and a little more like understandable i guess i'm not sure if that makes sense or not yeah no it, that was a big challenge for me that that was sort of the sort of like secret side project with making this was like a challenge to myself to like do something that is a little more heavy and dark, but uh, to keep it in the same tone as the Merman books. Um, and that's not due to any sort of like censorship or restrictions or anything. That's just due to kind of like the Merman books just come, came out the way they are because I wanted to create a fun story. Uh, my work, I, I have a hard time kind of thinking of audience to some extent. I just kind of create stuff that, uh, that feels fun. And, and they'd been sort of categorized throughout my whole life as being kids comics or all ages comics, uh, depending on who you ask. But with Merman, that was my first one where I was being really conscious to actually like, I made the main characters kids and I kind of started drawing on a little bit of the advice I was hearing from people in the industry, uh, interested in kids comics or making kids comics or selling kids comics. Um, but still, to the same extent, I, I tried to just create a fun story that would be fun to create with the idea that it would also be fun to read. And then uh, with this idea of Ghost Hog, 
um, the idea just kind of came first. I was just kind of doodling in a sketchbook and created this like ghost character who seemed cool. And you just start asking yourself these questions like, well, okay, why are they the way they are and what challenges do they face and things like that. And so with a ghost, it just does run into death and darker themes. And so I was like, okay, well, if I wanted to do this, do I want to make it a dark book? Do I want to make it a scary book? And I was like, no, I still want to make a fun adventure comic, you know. Uh, And so I was like, how do I do that? And that's just something that was always kind of in my mind, uh, keeping it in a similar tone to the Merman books, even if it is a little more heavy. And, you know, I see a little bit of uh, early responses from people where they're saying, like, it's a little weird that the main character is dead, you know, and and things like that. but uh, I, I like that challenge. I like the idea that uh, kids will read it and it's maybe a little harder for them. But I also think that, you know, uh, kids can handle a lot of stuff. They can handle kind of scary stuff and they can handle dark themes. Uh, there's no reason to um, to hold back, um, you know, to some extent mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, um, with, with kids' comics. Because I think about stuff I've, you know, saw as a kid that was maybe a little too scary for me and stuff. And I was a big chicken as a kid for sure. And I still am actually, I still don't really like uh, seeing scary movies and stuff, but I like monsters and I like uh, creatures and things. So uh, I, I sort of find that I have to make a compromise at some point where it's like, well, okay, this monster looks cool, but is the movie going to be too scary? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so, and so, yeah, I wanted to create something that's kind of fun. Like, um, Koa was a big, uh, Akira Toriyama's Koa, uh, was a big inspiration in that way. I looked to his comics and to Shigeru Mizuki's comics, uh, Kitaro and, and, um, and I really, uh, admired the way that those are about ghouls and spirits and things, but they're not actually scary. They're just fun. Yeah. And Koa is a series that also is kind of dealing with, kind of a dire situation in that all the monsters are suffering from this life-threatening disease and so it's up to like these child protagonists to go on this journey to like find a medicine in order to save their families so that's also dealing with some very heavy topics but Toriyama just employs so much humor and heart that the story is still compelling and isn't too distressing for younger readers like they can feel the weight of the emotions without being drowned by a dark topics and subject matter mm-hmm. totally yeah it's definitely still fun to read um ghost hog in particular i thought was great in that like even though it dealt with these heavier themes like i never felt like i was like I never felt like it was talking down to me about those things at all. Like, I feel like you really present those sorts of themes in a very frank, uh, honest, but still very, like, lighthearted way. Yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was an interesting balance to to not get too lost in focusing on, on these kind of dark, heavy themes, but to also not completely hand wave them away, you know? You know, when Truff is dead, you know, she's dead. She doesn't, like... You know, she 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 does home for infinite losers or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I haven't completely explored the afterlife, uh, uh, the the other world. So the who knows the home for infinite losers could potentially be there. 
<laughs> yeah, maybe further stories in this universe you've created with Ghost Hog. You could visit uh, the version of the afterlife and and see like what is that like. And I think that stories about ghosts and about the afterlife do help kind of uh, help especially younger readers like and younger audiences kind of engage with this idea that and like what life after that could mean and then also like uh, what life means when you have to contrast it with that i think like dealing with those existential existential topics at an early age can be difficult but then when you have like a story about a ghost like a character who is living beyond that it can help you it can kind of soothe your mind about being worried about that when you're young, but you can also start to kind of grapple with those emotions and with those concepts in a healthier, kind of easier to digest way. Yeah, totally. Um, Anytime I felt like I was uh, starting to get too concerned with the fact that I was maybe not treating it with enough gravitas or really wallowing in the fact that this character's uh, dead and what that means for them and their family and all that stuff that I, I reminded myself about uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost and I was mm-hmm. like that's a whole comic that's been running for decades that's about a ghost and that's about a dead child but like <laughs> nobody really thinks about that um, yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, yeah but uh, I, I, I could imagine myself as like a kid reading this and really enjoying it cool yeah yeah that's my number one priority is often uh make it fun you know i used to like in college i experimented with lots of different kinds of comics and i was really into comics like um like evan dorkin's comics and and chris ware's comics and these comics that had a lot of sort of like uh misery in them and i still think that those are great comics and i was starting to make a lot of these kind of cynical comics and then one day i just did a sort of goofy comic about these like dinosaurs finding a magic lamp (laughs) and it was like completely like that you know didn't have a lot of substance besides like this was fun to draw and it like felt like a weight was lifted off of me i was just like oh man this feels great like this feels so good to just draw something fun yeah it feels good to have fun and not be miserable and thinking about life all the time (laughs) (laughs) and also story your stories i love that they're really about empathy and your characters display so much compassion and ultimately the characters grow through their friendships and the connections they make and you know I enjoy that aspect of it. I think that teaches good lessons for younger audiences. But also, I think that there just needs to be more stories that express the value of that, of like having empathy for other people and being able to connect with them and engage with them emotionally and help others, I think is so important. Yeah, and I feel like that's something that I take from Peanuts, and I feel like that's something that I take from One Piece, you know, uh, you really like get down into people's emotions and stuff. And I think that, yeah, a, a lot of great comics deal with that. And anytime I start to think about putting my characters through dramatic situations, I can sometimes feel a little bad uh, for them, you know, and so through that, I think uh, that probably communicates. Uh, that's cool. Thank you. At at the same time, I almost I'm not saying it would necessarily like work, maybe, but I almost want to see what a cynical comic from Joey Weiser would be like. <laughs> <laughs> Joey's version of the Eltingville Club. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to track down some of my old mini comics <laughs> for that. <laughs> what Watchmen as drawn by Joey Weiser. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. <laughs> 
then that would have a whole second layer of cynicism about the way that Watchmen is interpreted. <laughs> <laughs> a cynical comic about Watchmen. <laughs> that, that would be pretty meta. funny. Um, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I personally, I, I think it's safe to say we, you know, Lum and I both really enjoyed Ghost Hog, and um, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure when this podcast will be out, but. But but by the time that this episode is out, hopefully Ghost Hog will already be available, or it'll be available, you know, within the coming days. Uh, yeah, so May 4th is Free Comic Book Day, which I know will be in the past by the time this is out, but a lot of times comic book stores still hold on to those issues, so you might uh, still be able to find a copy of the free Ghost Hog comic book, uh, which is different than the graphic novel. There's stories in there that isn't in the graphic novel, and then the Wednesday after that, um, or Tuesday, depending on bookstores, I think maybe do Tuesdays and comic book stores do Wednesdays or something like that. Anyway, the week after May 4th, uh, the the book will be out. And that's another great story, too, about not letting a session blind you to new experiences and kind of staying mired in depression and negative feelings instead of like, looking to move past and like try something new and try to find something else you would enjoy and something you'd be happy. I thought that was a really compelling short story. So I definitely encourage uh, you guys to check that out as well. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, when I was doing the ghost hog book, um, I spent so much time with it and kind of thinking about it while I was drawing it. And even after it's kind of locked in place, new thoughts about the world and, and, and the themes and stuff kind of just, kept swirling around in my head so i had a, a few extra little short stories in me uh, to tell about ghost hog and that ended up being the free comic book day issue i'm not i'm not sure if this is uh giving away too much at all and if it is i'll, I'll edit it out but uh i i have to be honest uh at, at the very end of the book uh the little advert for uh dragon racer really had me excited uh mm-hmm. is there is there anything you can talk about with that in particular or are we kind of keeping that under wraps for now well, okay, so all I can really talk about is what you've seen <laughs> in that one-page <laughs> ad. Uh, so Dragon Racer will be my next book, and there there is a one-page ad about it in the back of Ghost Hog, and it's going to be another self-contained graphic novel, but it does, as you can see in that ad, have Truff and Claude and Stanley, uh, the characters from Ghost Hog, in it. Uh, so it takes place in that world um, with maybe a bit more of a focus on this new character, uh, this dragon racer so he's a he's a dragon and he the, it involves cart racing kind of go-karts um and the the his his cart in particular is like super overly decorated <laughs> which kind of uh is inspired by these japanese decorated trucks uh that is a current obsession of mine and um yeah and so it it has some Different themes and stuff than Ghost Hog, but um, Truff and company will be will be involved for sure. Awesome. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I just finished writing it, and so I'm about to start drawing it. But I think I'm going to do kind of like what I did with Ghost Hog and do a short story or two to kind of get in the swing of things. So those I might post maybe like on my Patreon or something. Um, I haven't decided what I'm going to do with those short stories, but um, yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing them. I'm I'm sure it's I'm sure it's safe to say that there will probably be uh one or two uh truck Yarrow references in there somewhere, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, that is safe to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so the, what Colton's talking about is there's these 70s movies from Japan called Truck Yaro, definitely not for kids, uh, <laughs> that are very fun, uh, kind of like dumb comedies um, that I I really love and, and um, are just sort of dumb slapstick comedies um, with a lot of like, uh, you know, some like sex humor and, and some and some action fighting and stuff like that. Um, and I'm always kind of tooting their horn on social media, hoping that someone somewhere arrow video will put them out, but, um, they're kind of hard to track down. So, uh, I'm left to just kind of scream about them into the void. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and, and the new, uh, way that that's manifesting itself is drawing a graphic novel about (laughs) cart racing dragons. (laughs) Huh? Hey, draw what you love. Yeah, Totally. I mean that's the thing that I kind of learned from uh Merman is is I it's entirely made up of just kind of like wouldn't this be fun to draw and I was just having a blast making it and people started making comments that it seemed uh that that they were really fun to read and and it seemed and it felt like I was having fun. Mhm. Well, n- needless to say I'm I'm definitely looking forward to that whenever uh whenever it comes out because I mean who who doesn't love dragons and racing? <laughs> Let alone like the both of those things combined, yeah, it just sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of like the Speed Racer movie and a few other kind of like racing type things. Even though I'm not a big like car head myself, like I couldn't tell you anything about uh, engines or whatever. But something in me gets really compelled by uh, racing narratives. So finally, I'm I'm doing doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Will we see some wacky racist ex- shenanigans? In, uh... Oh, yeah. That was definitely <laughs> one thing that I drew some inspiration from as well. I was going to say, um, I mean, at the time of this uh, recording, you know, uh, uh, most of, you know, or I want to say at least like 80 to 90 percent of Initial D is just available on Comixology right now. Maybe uh, <laughs> maybe, 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 maybe that'll give you some more inspiration. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never read Initial D. I, maybe that's my next wormhole to sink into i definitely did pull out the old speed racer manga set that i have uh that i think is dmp it um but yeah this these uh speed racer manga and kind of looked at the way that they composed panels and stuff like that uh as i was drawing my thumbnails to get a little bit of inspiration nice i, st- I think that's still pretty readily readily available out there i've, I've seen it out there for like 15 dollars or something oh wow yeah I'd say go for it. They're really fun comics, and they're drawn really well. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm plan, definitely planning on buying that soon. I didn't, I didn't even know Speed Racer was like that readily. Like, I didn't know the manga was like just that readily available. Yeah, I don't know exactly what the story is on it, but I think Speed Racer, neither the manga or the anime, was really much of a thing in Japan, and I think it just sort of made its way over here and imprinted on our psyches instead. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I could, I could see that. I mean, it definitely seems like a, a more international and especially Western audience-based thing, considering all the sequels that they've made to Speed Racer over the years are primarily intended for Western audiences, and there really isn't much Japanese creative staff involved with them. Like, uh, yeah, totally. Speed Racer Next Generation, that series that was on Nicktoons uh, in the mid-2000s. Yeah, I mean, I think the more you dig into this stuff, the more you realize that, like, for the most part, a lot of the stuff, like, pre-2000s, maybe even pre... No, the stuff in the 90s, too, that we were getting over here in a big mainstream way before, like, Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z were, like, 
stuff that was cheap to license. So it was stuff that wasn't actually that popular in Japan. Um, but then it would make a huge impact here because we'd never seen anything like it, you know. I mean, even the Tanami lineup back when they were starting, they were getting a lot of those shows because they were cheap to air and acquire the rights to. Like before Dragon Ball and Sailor Moon became big brands here, like the license to them were cheap because they didn't have much of a fandom and because they didn't have the exposure. But then once you aired them every day on weekdays and kids could actually watch them when they weren't on early in the morning. uh, Yeah, then they caught an audience. But then even uh, stuff like Outlaw Star that they aired on the block, like they could get because like it was wasn't that popular. And then the Tanami made all that stuff popular. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Outlaw Star is a kind of like perfect example of that, that I'm like, I don't know if anybody I mean, I don't know. Maybe it has a following in Japan. I have no idea. But like, it doesn't seem that way to me. <laughs> yeah. But then people over here talk about it like it's like one of their most important series that they watched when they were a kid and stuff. It all really depends on like when you get introduced to something and what, what comes at the right time to really hit you in the right way and like make a meaningful impact on your life. And I think your books, Drew, I I think that a lot of people who are reading them as kids and are going to grow up with them are going to take some really valuable lessons from them. And I think it's really awesome that you're creating such great work that, you know, is reaching so many people and really making a meaningful impact in their lives. No, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I, I can't, um, I try not to start with a, with a lesson or a meaning when I'm writing or else it comes off too preachy. But um, I kind of come up with a fun idea and then figure out where that follow, kind of follow that to, to its logical <laughs> conclusion. And then the themes sort of present themselves. But um, it's a, it is very um, meaningful to me to hear uh, people say that they find meaning in them. What have been some of your favorite experiences as a creator, like meeting fans, perhaps at conventions or at signings you do? Like, what are some of your favorite experiences that you've had? Yeah, that's a that's a big question. Um, I just had a pretty cool experience uh, this past weekend. I was in Denver at a show called Dink, um, where this guy brought his son to me you know, encouraged his son to ask me about advice about making comics. And I gave him, you know, the I, I you know, I'm always try to be enthusiastic and stuff, but I gave him some somewhat boilerplate like advice, just kind of like, you should draw every day, you know, you can't help but get be- better if you draw as much as you can. And like, and, and asked him about what kind of comics he likes and, and things like that. And we just had like a nice conversation, but I didn't really think too much of it. Uh, and then the next day, the dad came back to the show and said, um, hey, that conversation you had with my son, like, meant a whole lot to him. And, and it really, like, you were so great with him. You were so great with him. And I was like, oh, thank you. That's very nice. And he's like, what I'd like to do is I'd like to buy your book and give it to somebody uh, at the show uh, of your choice. And I was just like, okay, uh, well, I don't have anybody in mind, but maybe it would be good to give it to a kid. So he went out and he found just a random kid and pulled them and their, their parent over to my table and said, like, pick anything out that you want. And, and they picked out a book and, and I drew it for the, and signed it and signed it for them. And, and, uh, and it was really sweet. <laughs> That's wonderful. That was a cool, uh, cool move by that guy. <laughs> um, yeah, and every once in a while, I, I've had someone tell me uh, that uh, Merman was the first book that their kid read on their own. 
which was amazing. Uh, they were apparently looking through one of the books in the back seat uh, of the car as they were driving somewhere. And then at one point, uh, their son like looked up and it was like said something about one of the characters and their parent was been like, I didn't start reading that to you. Do you like, <laughs> how do you know that? And, and it's that the kid had started reading on their own and, and Merman was that first experience for them. And that's uh, pretty <laughs> incredible. <laughs> wow. That, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. My, my books, um, like the, the publisher puts the target audience at third to fifth grade, which is called middle grade. Uh, but, I have uh, readers younger than that, like that example, as well as readers uh, older, like adults and stuff, too. Um, I, ha- I kind of have a problem with um, – I understand why, like, bookstores need to categorize things by who you're selling it to and things like that. But I, I don't um, – and it, it always feels really great to know that kids are reading the books. But I I, I kind of was brought up in a time where the comics world used the term all ages – uh, meaning comics uh, that were actually for everyone, and I try to try to make comics like that. I think you do. I think your books are for everyone, no matter how old they are. Awesome. Yeah, but uh, I guess now uh, I think we I think we have a little time here to just kind of talk about some manga stuff. Uh, I'm I'm personally curious. I uh, you you read pre- you read Shonen Jump often enough. I think. Yeah, I keep up with it every week, and I read most of it, I'd say. I don't know. I, I feel like that amount is lessening <laughs> as time goes on. <laughs> now that there are two dozen series. I, that's a thing that I would say is my one complaint about the – or I don't know. My main complaint about the new app – I love the new app, by the way. I'm just going to say that. But like the fact that we've done away with the issue format, a lot of the series that I was just kind of casually keeping up with, I don't read anymore because it's just like – that there's not the the effort of flipping past it has made me kind of drop a few things, but I read most of Shonen Jump. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think we've talked about that on the show before, where you know it's it, it feels like a monkey's paw kind of thing almost, where it's like you know we have this really incredible service now, where like you can pretty much read everything and choose what you want to read. Because I know that was a that was a complaint with some people because you know not everybody reads everything in the magazine, and I understand that, but like. I I do kind of miss the feeling of like just kind of picking up an issue and kind of flipping through it and you know finding something that like you know is new or just something that I had never read before like it it does kind of suck that that experience has mostly gone away with Shonen Jump now but again it's like I said it's a monkey's paw thing you know so yeah because the way it's currently works where you're you can kind of subscribe now that it has that like pick up where you left off row or whatever which is awesome like it, there's just no way to kind of do both without them offering a separate issue or something like that that seems like a weird uh choice for them so i totally get it it just a casualty of that is that i've now uh I don't know. I've I've stopped reading a few things, but I also uh, picked up uh, Hinamara Sumo and David. Nice. David Renaissance David over on Manga Plus. So oh, that's gonna make V Lord GTC very happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I read the first like whatever eight chapters of Blue Flag, and that one I'm waiting. Like with Hinamaru and David, obviously, I I felt pretty comfortable just jumping ahead. And being kind of like, eh, I'll miss some of the drama of Hinamaru or whatever, but I can basically understand what's going on. But with Blue Flag, I loved it so much that I was like, 
I'll just wait till the rest of this is available because I don't want to kind of cheat myself on missing any of the like no spoilers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> type thing. Oh yeah. So every once in a while, I check there to see if they've added more chapters, and nope. <laughs> uh, they they filled the gap for some of those Manga Plus series, but Blue Flag is still a holdout. I'm hoping they do eventually, though, because yeah, I mean, as a fan of Kaito's work, and like, man, I want to f- re- I want to read that those gap of chapter in Blue Flag. I don't want to miss a beat of that story because like every chapter of it, I think is is going to be important to under- to like truly appreciating the journey those characters are going on. Yeah, Cross Manage was like my first experience with the sort of shonen jump heartbreak you know <laughs> of being just so in love with something and then them being like nope not popular enough and uh yeah yeah oh. i um i love kaito's work a lot too i think um yeah i, I think my first was probably with um kohei horikoshi you know back when like oh, like yeah. before my hero academia and he had like Omagadoki Zoo and how like in love i was with that series like all the way back in like 2010 2011 um, and, and I mean, like, I love my hero academia and everything, but like, man, I really wish he could have kept going with that series though. Yeah. I love the, I've read maybe, I don't know, a third of Omagadoki Zoo. Um, and it seems really awesome. I keep kind of just holding out hope that maybe someday my hero De- academia will be popular enough. <laughs> it seems <laughs> like it should be, uh, that they will finally license that, but who knows? I don't know. We're still missing a lot of uh, Toriyama work in English, too, which is exceptionally frustrating. Uh, yeah. And very surprising that they haven't gotten around to those straggling works of his yet and just collected them all. There's an audience for them, and I just don't know why they are holding off on it. Yeah, I get the impression that just, um, you know, it's been so long, but I get the impression that Sandland and Koa just didn't sell as well as they wanted, and and oh, and Dr. Slump for that matter too. Although Dr. Slump they recently put it back into print, didn't they? Oh, did they? Yes, I, I believe the series is still in print and you can get it pretty easily and readily. And now that it's available on the Shonen Jump app, uh, it's very accessible. So I'm hoping that gets more people into Dr. Slump and really appreciating like Toriyama's creative comedic genius. Yeah, Dr. Slump, boy, I love that series so much. Um yeah, it's almost gotten to the point where it's not quite like Dragon Ball will always have the like nostalgia thing kind of over it uh, in terms of like meaningfulness. But like, I almost get more excited when I see Arale than when I see Goku these days. <laughs> I know, it's, man, it's it really flip flops for me too because Dragon Ball that is so integral to my anime manga fandom, and you know, is still a franchise that is burning alive today and there's always new stuff to be excited about for it. But Dr. Slump is just such pure unbridled creativity that is just mm-hmm. stud when I was young, it was just like so insane. Like the kind of off the wall, crazy stuff Toriyama did with that series. And also how cheeky it was, how Toriyama would place himself as a character within the own work. And it's just, it's such the creative playfulness in that series, I think, is just unparalleled in uh, pretty much in any other like comedy of its kind that I've read. That it really feels so special to me. And Dragon Ball is super special to me too. But like when I think of Toriyama and his voice as an artist, I think back to Doctor Slump because I think of like the the mechanical designs he drew in that series, like 
comedic sensibilities he displayed in that series. To me, that was probably Toriyama at his most, like, unrefined. Like, the most purely him. Yeah, totally. And that's why I would really love to see the short story collections translated in English even more than people ask for Kajika all the time and Nekomajin. I love both of those, especially Nekomajin, but like I'm kind of a little lukewarm on Kajika, but but his short story collections, I think, have that quality where it's just like complete bonkers, like him just playing around and that playfulness is like really compelling and fun. Most definitely. Man, we I I so something tells me we need to have uh, Joey on for when, whenever we talk about uh, Doctor Slump in the future. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, totally. I'd be down for that. Awesome. Yeah, I yeah I'm a huge. I mean, we've already talked about this. But I'm a huge Toriyama fan. I I am and sort of a collector to some extent, where I have all of his manga in Japanese and English. Wow. Um, uh, anything that's been released in like Tankoban uh, format, um, in one format or another. Um, and that collection continues to grow. He doesn't put out a lot of manga anymore, but you know, the Dragon Ball Super manga is continuing and we get art books every once in a while. Yeah. So obviously, yes, you're a huge fan of Toriyama and, and Oda and whatnot. And I think you mentioned, um, Mizuki earlier. Um, are, are, are there any manga artists that all come to mind that whether you love their work or their work is sort of kind of like dripped into your comics or, you know, or even like any series that you're reading and jump right now that you want to talk about while we're still here or? Uh, let's see. Um, what am I really loving? And I'm really loving Chainsaw Man right now. Mm. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. It seems like they want to keep that around. I hope so. I, it just, um, it's just a real pleasure to read. Like it, it's structured in a way, I think and this may be just <laughs> to some extent, the fact that there's like less text in it than a lot of, uh, other manga, but like, the artist like really like plays around with format and it reads very smoothly in a way that a lot of manga doesn't. Um, and so it's just like a pleasure to read. Um, so I'm really loving that. I'm let's see. Promise Neverland is one that I'm always excited to, um, to find out what's happening. Although my, I don't know. It's sort of like, I get frustrated with it sometimes and my interest on it kind of waxes and wanes like where it's at right now. I'm pretty excited again, but um, I don't know. Every once in a while, I feel like, I don't know. It's not quite what it used to be. It can't always be what it used. It can't be the kids trapped in the house for years and years, but like, um, you know, yeah, I've definitely heard complaints from other people too. post grace feel like that there are stretches of the series where it really feels it kind of lost what it was. I personally also was kind of feeling a little lost with it in about the middle section of the Goldie Pond arc where it was focusing on the new characters that we really hadn't gotten to know yet. And that to me, because we were focusing so much on these new group of kids, I felt a little detached from Emma and her situation and what her goal was. And so that I think was a kind of a really unfortunate stretch of chapters where my investment emotionally wasn't there but then i think whenever the series really focuses on emma and the main protagonist and like what their goals are i think that's where it really shines and when they they give them choices that they really have to grapple with like they have been recently i think that's where the series is at its best yeah, the recent stretch of chapters has been really good. I, I'm excited about the fact that we're kind of paring down the cast a little bit, and we're going to just be focusing on Emma and Ray for a bit, mm-hmm. um, seemingly, because, you know, they're the characters I care the most about. 
And then uh, I'm a big uh, Kimetsu no Yaiba uh, Demon Slayer fan. That's a one I've been excited about ever since like the jump start, and then seeing images of it always kind of like excited me. Speaking of uh, Ghost Hog, um, seeing that character with the boar head, like I was just like, "What is this? Like, I, I why did our our Shonen Jump <laughs> cancel this? You know?" And I was very <laughs> frustrated with it. And so now I'm at this like weird spot where I'm like in three different places at once where I'm, I've started watching the anime. I read the books as they come out and I'm reading the current chapters with that big uh, gap in between. Uh, and so it's kind of like a weird space where I have to kind of rearrange where I'm like at, at mentally every time I pick it up in one form or another. Well, you'll at least you'll catch up eventually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, eventually they'll close that 100 chapter gap between the volume releases and the where the simulpump chapters started. Yeah, that was another one that I felt like I was just so eager to keep reading it. And it seemed less, uh, you know, like Blue Flag is just such a like grounded drama that I didn't want to deal with that gap. But like action manga, I can kind of I can kind of do that, even though I'm pretty lost as to who everybody is and what's going on right now (laughs) in those current chapters. (laughs) I know everyone in the first five volumes uh, past that can make educated guesses about their relationship. Yeah, totally. (laughs) But I just love... um, I love her art like it's very like it's chunky and and rough in a way that I find very compelling and interesting and that's something that's unfortunately kind of a little smoothed out in the anime even though the anime looks gorgeous mm-hmm. oh yeah um, it does kind of lose the artist's hand a little bit which is just something that happens in anime and, and thankfully it's smoothing it out in a way that looks nice rather than in a sort of like stilted way uh, like some some anime adaptations are. But um, yeah, I, I find and the simplicity of her art and the way that she works with patterns to kind of like make different characters stand out and stuff is just really interesting to me. And so I've always been very compelled by it. And like uh, Chainsaw Man, it's a pretty easy like read, like it's laid out in a way that's very fun and, and easy to read. Uh, I know you guys are a fan of Neolation, but it didn't really grab me. So I stopped reading that and mm. um, and and um uh, that's it, the the one about the hair. Yui Kamio? Um, yeah, that one I liked the art so much in that, but it just, it felt so weirdly dated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it felt like a not, 90s era or early 2000s era kind of rom-com. There was even some, in the first chapter, it felt like it was almost like a shoujo rom-com premise, and now it feels a little more like shonen rom-com-y. But yeah, it definitely feels like, a rom-com of a bygone era which is weird i mean i love old manga that don't you know i live in the showa era basically but like i <laughs> i you know i and i love uh rumiko takahashi and that it definitely made me think of ranma and stuff but like it's missing something that is appealing about that older work as well as feeling like that older work so it just didn't quite work for me it yeah it's kind of weird for the artist too the creator of Neuro, the Rise of Yokai Clan, because I, you know, the their art, it definitely does feel kind of old schoolish, but the storytelling didn't necessarily feel like that with Neuro, but this definitely feels like, huh, this is reminding me of stuff of that era, like uh, Rosario and Vampire and stuff. It gives me that still similar feeling. Yeah. Nur is a series that I would like to read sometime. I read the chapters that ran in the digital Shonen Jump in Shonen Jump Alpha. Um, 
And I had a similar seri- feeling to where I'm at with Demon Slayer, where I was like, this looks cool, but I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, now, is that in the archives? It is. I think it is. Yeah. yeah. So I think that might be on my list to eventually go through. I went through Hikaru no Go, and that was great. That was kind of a nostalgia. That was an early uh, scanlation read for me. So it was kind of nice to read the official translation. And... I what was uh, oh and now I'm I'm about halfway through Astro Lost in Space. Oh, nice. cool, I'm cool. liking that comic a lot. I just haven't had time to read it. I kind of like slammed the first like thirty or forty, or wait no, wait, the first twenty chapters or so. It, it is like forty chapters long, right? Or something mm-hmm. like that. Forty nine. Yeah. So I, I I like read the first like twenty chapters in a weekend, and then I kind of cooled off, and and I'm waiting to like read more of it when I get a chance. But I'm liking that series a lot. Mm, yeah. That's cool. That's cool, man. If only if only Shinahara's other series were available. <laughs> yeah, um, one day maybe they'll license Get Dance, and we can have all that in the vault. That'd be nice. Maybe maybe the Astra anime will be so popular that Astra <laughs> Lost in Space the manga will just completely sell out, and then Viz will be like, "Man, we gotta get Sket Dance." And I'll be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I keep wondering about this Shonen Jump app. It seems like, like on one hand, it seems like without the commitment of having to do print volumes it might incentivize them to like do more old series but at the same time if it's just kind of adding more junk to the vault that doesn't necessarily pay off in any way they might not do that they might just continue to build the vault in real time and so like i for one would love for them to do more old series but um i'm curious to see how it goes mm-hmm. i think they might take a chance on shorter works before longer works mm. but you know i think that going back to omagadoki zoo because that is only a five volume long series and because it's tied to a popular mangaka like koei horikoshi i feel like that could be something they could try being like a vault exclusive series at first and then if readership is strong and a lot of people are going to read it uh through the app they could give that an eventual print release but i feel like it'd be series like those that we might see them try out first before longer stuff like sket dance because a series that long are definitely more of a commitment to like translate and uh, put low, put up in the app even even if they aren't spending costs on printing. Yeah, they still have to pay you know editors, translators, letters, yeah, mm. on that stuff. Yeah, I honestly I didn't even think about the possibility of having like um like like new exclusive series on there because I know I had mentioned on the show at one point that like I I really wish that they would put up like runs of stuff from the from the digital shonen jump that like never got like any kind of release whatsoever like in a stealth symphony or hi-fi cluster even if even if some of those are arguably you know any good um it, it would be nice to, it would be nice to have those available just as like hey here's some app exclusive stuff yeah they really i would really love for them to add a one-shot section too because the stuff like that shimabukuro thing about oda and like and the other various little like one shots by like the Nisekoi artist and stuff like that's all like basically gone unless you dig through the back issues. So like that would be nice for them to have a tab that's like one shots and then you can get that. And then I think somewhat recently, I can't remember what it was. There was some one shot that seemed like this would have run in the magazine if the magazine existed, but instead we're just not going to get it. Yeah, I hope they don't give up on one shots and we 
see those added to the vault in the future too um but as for other manga um i'm a big urasawa fan uh i love the akira manga it's sort of the kind of classic stuff like that um yeah and i'm um i just uh my sister for my birthday just gave me um in this corner of the world Ooh, which cool. is uh awesome i i loved that movie and it's really interesting to see how it translates like how the comics look and uh the art in that is so like there's a certain quality to like round, not exactly chibi, but kind of like cute manga style where everything fits together really well. And it just looks really great. Like I really love sort of a gag manga style and like these like old salaryman comics and stuff that I come across every once in a while. I'm just like, man, the art looks so good because they're just these like cute little characters. And, and that that comic kind of has that quality where they're these they're they're. Um, a little like I don't know. It's it's hard to explain. They're they're not chibi for sure, but they're they're very cute and round looking, and uh, very and soft. It's very great. Yeah, very soft. And yeah, and occasionally like uh, even the characters will have like a dry brush effect or something uh, on their on their clothes and stuff that like looks very natural, um, and looks really great. But yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm also reading. I just started reading Uzumaki because I'm gonna be in Toronto when Junji Ito is at TCAF. So ah, nice. I need to brush up on Ito because I just know him by reputation. I've never actually read any of his comics. Go back to my discussion of being scared of things. <laughs> uh, like <laughs> I've seen a live action movie of Uz- Uzumaki like a long time ago. Like yeah, and so I kind of like have a familiarity with it, and I figure that's kind of one of his tentpole titles. So I borrowed the book from a friend and. And I just started it, and it's pretty creepy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ito's stuff is great. Luckily, they aren't, like, too scary, but they are always conceptually disturbing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. How, how, how are you liking Uzumaki so far? Uh, pretty good. I'm, um, like, I don't know, five or six chapters into it, and I, I like it. I'm, I'm curious to see if it ever, like, builds to anything or if it's just going to be a collection of short stories around this idea of a town being consumed by spirals. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm liking it. I like, um, the drawings in it and the, the, yeah, the sort of creepy, the overall creepy atmosphere rather than going for the scare ever. Although every once in a while you get one of those pages that you turn and somebody's face is really disfigured or something and it's <laughs> pretty horrifying. <laughs> yeah. I would suggest reading, um, Gyo. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, his, 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 uh, short series about, uh, these, uh, sea creatures that are attached to these, like, mechanical robotic legs i forget what their whole deal was but uh they look like like spider legs right yeah um i've seen images of it online yeah the 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 manga is good uh but if you want like a really a fun like b horror movie like the 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 uh, what was it the the animated version of that is pretty fun though it's oh, really? n- nowhere near representative of, of the actual work uh, <laughs> <laughs> But no, yeah. Was there was there anything else you wanted to wanted to point out or? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty good rundown. I yeah, I hope. Uh, where well, let's let's see. I'm a big uh, yeah, like I mentioned, I'm a big Mizuki fan. So uh, we're about to get to the end of the Kitaro books that they've announced. So I, I'm curious to see where they go from there. Yeah, I saw that the last one isn't coming out until like February 2020 or something. Oh. Yeah, the the listing for it's up on Amazon right now. That's some, somewhat disheartening. Yeah, I don't know. I hope that they do more um, of his yokai manga. Like, 
uh, Sanpei the Kappa or, or Akuma-kun or something because, um, you know, I love Kitaro and I could read Kitaro all day, but it would be cool to see some of his other yokai stuff. And I, I prefer that personally to like Showa and, and his more realistic stuff, which is also good and has a lot of merit, but doesn't quite grab me as much as his uh, yokai stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Do you yeah. um do you read Dr. Stone by any chance? I do read Dr. Stone. Yeah. Mm. What, do you, what do you think about that one so far? Um, yeah, I like Dr. Stone a lot. That's one that I don't know. I feel like that's one that I love sometimes. And then other times I'm just kind of keeping up with it because I know that I love it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. Every once in a while, it'll start to lose me or um, I don't know. Uh, it, it has that that manga problem that a lot of manga runs into where they introduce a bunch of characters all at once and and you don't know which ones you really care about um, that's fair but, yeah mm-hmm. but almost all manga has that issue um it's just a thing that happens where you start building your cast and seeing what sticks uh but yeah it's in a pretty exciting section now with them departing out into the waters and stuff yeah i don't know what to say i really like um What's his name? Is it Chrome? That's the guy that says bad all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I like that guy a lot. I think that he is a really good kind of like, uh, t- is Taiju the original, the the meathead dude? Yeah. I think mm-hmm. He's kind of like a Taiju 2.0 or something where he's like a little bit more, he's kind of that same idea of a kind of dumb me- meathead guy, but he actually. Well, he's actually smart. But he's actually smart and interested in science and he kind of like is more compelling in that way. And so he's somebody that like Senku can like explain stuff to, but he's uh <laughs> you know, learning and and engaged with it rather than just like, oh I don't get it, but just tell me what to lift, you know. <laughs> yeah. It really feels like Taiju was the first draft of the character Chrome would be in terms of being the deuteragonist of the series and like Senku's right hand <laughs> and confidant. And, and you get to see someone really grow. Like, Senku's a genius forever and is already perfect, which is a little frustrating sometimes. Um, it would be interesting to see a story arc where he's kind of, you know, challenged a bit more. And, you know, some of the characters are kind of set in their way, but, like, Chrome is always kind of, like, improving and growing. And that's what's really compelling. You know, that's that shown in spirit, right? Um, yeah, so that's that's been really fun to watch. Yeah, I, I mean, now that you say that, it makes a little more sense. Uh, Chrome definitely feels like a more... Uh, Chrome definitely feels like he's gotten more time to develop than Taiju. It feels a, He feels like a, well... He feels like a more realized version of that character, definitely. Um, I was also wondering if it was just because, like, maybe Taiju just wasn't that popular of a character or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious what the decision was to kind of, like, introduce these characters and then send them off almost immediately... Because it really felt like it really felt like uh, they were sort of um, they were sort of hinting at like um, or not hinting, but it sort of felt like they had like they were like really maybe not best friends, but at least like really good friends. Like they had a real strong they they obviously have a strong oh, connection. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we see. Yeah, but, but nowadays, like friends. he's just kind of on the side doing whatever, tilling the fields, I guess, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just kind of mm-hmm. weird. Yeah, totally. yeah. I mean, once they got to Ishigami Village, like the cast just grew so much, and there were so many new, interesting characters with more utility. That yeah, I think Taiju now is just <laughs> he is kind of like in that 
a secondary or tertiary character in terms of importance. Like he doesn't, he aside from offering like physical manpower, he doesn't really have that much more to offer other than the fact that he was Senku's childhood friend. And even Yuzuriha is actually more important and essential a character than him because of her uh, skills in like uh being able to create clothing and uh, being able to sew things and all that stuff which are incredibly vital like they, she made the sails for the ship so you know <laughs> yeah that was important um yeah so and and yeah and now we're heading towards a another inhabited island possibly which is exciting to kind of meet a whole new culture of people um all right but uh i think we're getting to the point where uh we should probably start wrapping up soon uh, I don't have anything else I want to ask Joey in particular, unless um, unless you do, Lum. Actually, I do have one question still. Uh, this is more about kind of your work process nowadays. So you mentioned before that you work with uh, paper and ink. You draw stuff out by hand, uh, like your pencils, uh, you know, on physical paper, and then you scan those in. And nowadays, like, the process of making art has become more and more digital. And I was wondering, do you use more digital processes now than you were when you're starting out? Uh, do you ever think about transitioning into making your comics completely digitally? Or do you just like that feeling of drawing on the page with pencil and then doing your inks by hand? Yeah, I like the feeling of drawing on paper, but it does slow down the process a lot, like, because uh, then you have to, like, scan them in and clean up the scans and all that stuff. And every once in a while, when I think about, like, oh, man, how did somebody make that so fast? Like, when somebody makes, like, a topical piece of fan art or something like that, the answer is that they're just drawing it straight on the computer and then they can post it to Twitter or whatever, right? So, like, um, so I think about that sometimes, but, and I'm not totally comfortable drawing uh, straight digitally. Um, and it's just, I, I think does have something to do with like, I just kind of missed that window a little bit. I'm a little too old, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I could train if I could, uh, maybe if I like ever got like a Cintiq or something that was a little more comfortable than drawing on a tablet, but I do a lot of like minor corrections in Photoshop. So I hate whiteout, um, whiteout never really quite worked for me and, and especially then inking and drawing back over the whiteout and stuff. Uh, never really quite worked for me. And so at this point, I <clears throat> do any sort of corrections digitally, and that will occasionally uh, involve some light drawing. And um, also filling in blacks, you know, I used to do that. And I like the way my artwork looks a lot better just in person when you look at it with the filled in inked blacks. But like, it just is so much faster and uses less um, resources to leave those areas empty and then fill them in in Photoshop. So things like that. And then I color completely digitally, which is these days is kind of starting to involve more and more drawing. So I, I'm starting to get a little bit more comfortable drawing, but I've never like created completely uh, drawn work. Uh, the back the, or the background in the cover to ghost hog is drawn digitally um, because I had originally wanted it to look very stark and just be kind of like a solid color or a gradient or something with, with Truff kind of swirling out from, from kind of a blank canvas sort of to look, uh, very simplified and striking. 
but it, it ended up just kind of looking too empty. So I drew the mountains and I drew stars and, and clouds and stuff. And these things that are kind of pretty basic shapes that are not very, and, and the little grassy hill and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, that's getting a little bit into drawing digitally, but I've never like, yeah, drawn a character from beginning to end digitally. And, uh, that's just kind of due to my own comfort with it. Um, but yeah, I think about that a lot sometimes about practicing. It definitely takes some getting used to. I didn't really start drawing digitally, like for most of my projects until my junior year of high school. I mean, art school, because in my first two years of uh, college at SVA, you know, the we still did uh, animations by paper and pencil. You know, we had a stack of papers, we punch holed them, wow. we drew yeah. we drew all that by hand, <laughs> uh, and we had to. Whenever we messed up, we had to scrap the paper and get another paper. And there was, often was not enough paper, so uh, you had to ration <laughs> very carefully. But then uh, in junior year, uh, we started moving completely digitally. And that's kind of where the animation industry is now, mostly. And that's like what a lot of the artists that I know, that they are mostly just drawing digitally these days. And But I always do still miss the feel of like just drawing on like paper and with pencil and i still try to you know just do sketches like that from the time to get that feeling because even now that i'm more used to just drawing straight on the tablet like there is still a different feeling i think from you know drawing with uh you know ink from a pencil ink from a pen or pencil than drawing from like the digital ink in the side of the computer which are all pixels Mm -hmm. and stuff yeah, my my characters are drawn are inked and and foreground objects and stuff are inked with a brush, which took a lot of getting used to. Um, I, it came from professors and people continuously telling me uh, that my art style would look good with a brush because it has a sort of classic animated look or something like that. Uh, whereas I was originally using technical pens because they were comfortable. Um, but these days, I just love that feeling so much of using the brush, like it's my favorite part of the process is inking with the brush. And yeah, it would be a little sad to, to lose Mm -hmm. that. And I really love your inks. I love the tick outlines you have uh, in your art. And like, I just really like that style. And I think there's so much liveliness to it. Thank you. And just one more question on the subject of your art. Like what is the hardest thing that you've ever had to draw? Like, in your entire career, like, what is, like, the most challenging thing you've had to draw? And also, what's the most challenging thing you've had to write in the process of making comics? Um, let's see. Uh, the most challenging thing I've had to write is probably... I was starting to have a lot of... So I did work for SpongeBob Comics for a long time. And I um, was mostly writing and then occasionally drawing for them. And I really hit a block at the last like year or so of that comics run. It ended last year. And um, I don't know where that comes from exactly. At, to some extent, it might have just come from me burning through a lot of my kind of like easy ideas uh, and um, and things. But I was starting to kind of struggle with it. And then... The, my last few comics that I did for SpongeBob were specifically based on like actual events in my life, which I then would sort of like SpongeBob them up, you know, so they'd be funny. But like, <laughs> um, 
I and and a lot of my SpongeBob comics were that way, were just kind of stray ideas I'd have and stuff. So at one time, I know this isn't exactly your question, but at one time somebody asked me what my most personal comics were, and I was like, to some extent, they're the SpongeBob comics I'm writing because they're actually <laughs> reflective of like what's going on in my life right now. Um, but yeah, so that that that's definitely a struggle a struggle I had, and um, I, I came up with a few scripts, but I, I'm a little sad that I didn't do as much work for them in their last year as I did at the beginning of the SpongeBob comics run. Uh, because of just having this kind of weird block that I couldn't completely push through. As for drawing, you know, drawing is tough uh, sometimes. Drawing, like, organic things like animals and, and creatures and stuff is where I'm most comfortable. And then it's hard to then draw stuff that's more technical but still make it look lively. So my first uh, book, uh, The Ride Home, is about a van gnome. So it's like a lawn gnome, but they live in a minivan. And what that meant is that it was kind of re- revolving around drawing this minivan over and over again. And as much as like my hero Toriyama loves drawing cars, like that's not something I'm very comfortable with. So it took a, <laughs> a lot of like figuring out of like how to draw cars um, to not look too stiff. I could figure out how to draw the car using, you know, basic perspective and stuff. But then it would still look very boxy and not look like a real thing that fit in with the rest of the world. And my sort of solution to that was to figure out, and this is the way I still work with things that involve a lot of perspective, is to figure that all out in the pencil stages and get it very tight. But then when I'm inking, don't use any rulers or you know any sort of tools besides drawing with the pen or brush. And that ends up making things look a little wobblier and a little more organic. And it ends up fitting in with my style a lot more. Yeah, that's a great trick. I think that the the waviness, just some slight waviness in like line work can really convey a lot more energy or like a sense of life to uh drawing than if they had just really perfect straight lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've come to do that with my panel borders too. My old comics, I used to do the panel borders with technical pens, even when I was doing brush and stuff with the characters. And now... I I rule them out with a T square in pencils, but then I I brush them fr- I I do them freehand with a brush, and they're they're pretty wobbly, but it, it makes them fit in a little bit more. And I definitely noticed that with Merman that in the first book, like the panel borders were a lot more like straight for the most part, but then as the books went on, they definitely d- felt looser. So that's very interesting here. Uh, just going back to the SpongeBob comics real quick. Uh, I didn't get a chance to go through a lot of them, but like I was kind of curious as to like just 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 to kind of see like what your contributions to those were. So I I read like a few of the beginning issues at least um, from when like you used to do you used to really do more like short shorter like vignettes and whatnot. I really liked the one from issue fifteen where. Uh, uh, where everybody transforms into oh. uh, into a robot. <laughs> that one was pretty great. Yeah, here's a here's a little tidbit about that. Uh, when that was running, the current Super Sentai series was Gokaiger, which uh, are sort of uh, one PC uh, characters. They're like space pirates, and I um, every time their their robot would transform, he'd strike a pose, and I totally used that pose uh, for their their combined robot. <laughs> so it's doing the Gokaiger pose. Oh, that's oh, awesome! Wow. That's that's pretty. You great. had SpongeBob reference Gokaiger. That's so good. 
<laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one um, was, yeah, it was just sort of a giant robot uh, parody send off thing. And it was the editor's idea to do it in black and white. So it would look like manga. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember the first time I read it, like, I, I just I just love how they just have like a random guy helping them. And I love how there's the <laughs> caption. Who's this guy? <laughs> Yeah, he, like, makes up the leg or one of the arms or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'll definitely have to read more of those, because uh, I, I, I definitely noticed that you started contributing more and more, uh, like, full stories to, to those issues. I'll, I'll have to check out more of those. I actually did. I, I, I enjoyed those a little more than I thought, just because, like, you know, I, I'm usually kind of wary with, like, media tie-in kind of things, because mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not usually too super into those kinds of things. Um, yeah. But yeah, the uh, the SpongeBob comics I read actually were kind of fun, so I'll, I'll have to like read more of those in my spare time. Yeah, the people that put that together. Um, so it was edited by Chris Duffy, who used to be a comics editor at Nickelodeon Magazine, mm-hmm. and Nickelodeon Magazine used to be a sort of secret, uh, the secret best job in comics, <laughs> and then for a while, the secret best job in comics was the SpongeBob comic book. Um, and yeah, Duffy is like a really smart dude who knows comics and knows cartoonists. And he just has an eye for like people and and what their specific strengths are and stuff. So he put together those comics and about each issue would be kind of split half and half between on model artists and off model artists. Um, So you got some stuff that looked exactly like the show and then some stuff that was a little more like somebody's personal style. And um, it took a while to convince because, okay, so he was the main editor and then Steve Hillenberg, who created SpongeBob, uh, everything ran by him uh, afterwards, after Chris Duffy looked at things. And Steve, like, had just been seeing my roughs. Like, that's my – I don't write scripts. I, I do, like, sketched out thumbnail rough versions of the comics, and I would turn those in as my scripts for the other artists to draw. So Steve had only seen my roughs, and he just wasn't completely sold on the idea of me doing uh, the art for my stories and then I eventually took one of my rejected scripts because uh, I, you know, I would pitch three or four at a time and then one or two of those would get accepted. And I, so I took one of my rejected ones and, and just did finished comic pages of it just so they would know what it looked like. And from that point on, I was able to draw some of my stories, short stories. I never did like a full 10 page story. Uh, those they would usually give to one of the on model artists. Mm. Oh, really interesting. That's awesome. But I'm pretty proud of that work. Um, some of those stories, like I said, do kind of reflect uh, what was going on in my life at the time and things that I was thinking about and um, other weird little things that I just thought were funny or whatever. Um, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty proud of that SpongeBob outfit for sure. Just out of curiosity, uh, I know we're, I know we're getting kind of close to wrapping up here soon. But uh, are there any kind of examples you can kind of give us? Well, uh, one one that I don't know why I super love it is this one called Double Bubble Trouble, where they they create bubble clones of like SpongeBob and Patrick get this magic bubble solution from a witch and make uh, bubble clones of themselves. And that one is just like I have a weird thing where I just am sort of fascinated with people like clones and and people mirroring things and stuff like that. And so that that comes from that. But then there also was one from uh, the last year uh, that's all about tubing, um, you know, like going down a river in an inner inner tube. And that's because I had gone with some friends uh, up to northern Georgia where there's like mountains and stuff and and did tubing one uh, time and had a 
sort of miserable time doing it. I, it, <laughs> I enjoyed myself, but I also like was uncomfortable and felt like the people there were like all these people on the sidelines just like hanging out and watching people too but i felt very (laughs) self-conscious about them judging me and stuff (laughs) and so i just poured all of that and you had to buy all this like expensive equipment just to like float down a river uh and stuff and i was so i had a lot of like (laughs) stuff stuck in my craw about it basically and so i did a whole comic where spongebob uh and patrick and and sandy go tubing and, and spongebob's sort of the newbie in in my position and patrick and sandy are like pros at tubing and so and it eventually like culminates in this big like tidal wave that they have to like ride and, and all this stuff and so you know so it's still goofy funny spongebob stuff but um but yeah that that reflected <laughs> r- real life joey stuff oh that's that's really interesting I could just I could just imagine there like being people in the crowd who are just like mm, that boy don't tube right or <laughs> yeah no totally yeah no I use the there's some like hillbilly fish characters that are from one of the movies and and I I use them as uh as the people that were like making fun of SpongeBob as being a, a city boy uh, stuck between two rocks and all this stuff <laughs> oh uh, do you remember what issue that was. Uh, not off the top of my head. It's one of the last issues that I that I contributed to. So if you, I have them all uh, listed on my website uh, in my about page. I did a pretty like good job, I think, of of listing every single issue that I was in. So, um, yeah, one one of those last issues. I gotta seek that out. Oh, man, actually, that that I guess uh, that's a good as transition as any. Um, because uh so i was about to ask where people could find you and everything but uh so yeah when when i when i looked you up online to like kind of you know look up your work and whatnot um because unfortunately you know no no, i don't think there's a wikipedia page for you that exists (laughs) no unfortunately (laughs) so uh there's your uh I i think you have like a portfolio page online or something and then you have uh your your i think it's your like your own website that you built, I'm assuming called uh, Terrible Planet, Terrific tragic Planet. planet. <laughs> yeah, so Tragic Planet, like tragic, it's tragic hyphen planet uh, because it's a URL that looks good but is impossible to describe. Uh, it, yeah, tragicplanet.com used to be my webpage that was like built from HTML and stuff. And nowadays it just redirects to an Adobe portfolio page uh, that has different sections with like art and comics you can read samples of my comics as well as some full um short story comics and stuff um and then there's also that about page and and stuff like that but that that yeah that's built through like one of those just like portfolio creator sites but uh tragic planet uh tragic hyphen planet.com will will get you there or just google my name you'll find it i'll I'll probably leave links to both for people who are interested in seeking out your work because uh you know finally after like you know, having your stuff on my to read list, you know, after after checking out your stuff, I can I can confidently say that uh, I am definitely looking forward to more of your comics for sure. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, we'll we'll definitely leave links for people to, you know, buy not only like Ghost Hog, but also Merman as well for anybody who's uh, interested in checking that series out as well. Uh, definitely go check out Ghost Hog. If it's even if it's not out, you know, pre-order it. I'm I'm sure you can buy a copy from wherever books are sold. Um, I'm sure it'll be pretty easy to find. But yeah, no, uh, anywhere else people can find you. I, I know you're on Twitter. 
Oh yeah, I'm definitely on Twitter <laughs> for better or worse. Um, yeah, yeah. Follow me on Twitter at Joey Weiser, and and Twitter is sort of a mix of everything. I I post about my comics, I post about anime and manga, and and movies I'm watching, and 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 just kind of everything. Um, and then um, on Instagram, uh, Joey Weiser Comics is uh, more strictly professional, kind of just like images and things about my artwork and artwork that I've done in the past. Like I only signed up for Instagram in the last uh, few months, so it's kind of a new ground for me to like fill with old art and new art and stuff like that. Um, and then joeywazier.tumblr.com is um, where I post my news uh, for as long as Tumblr still exists. And uh, I have a Patreon too that is just um, just $2 a month and you get like a weekly update on what I'm working on and, and sketches and, and behind the scenes stuff. Awesome. And uh, I know you uh, I know you do a few other podcasts as well. Oh yeah, I should plug that. So I'm on the One Piece podcast from time to time uh, as a guest. It's kind of uh, been infrequent lately um, with them moving to Sundays. It doesn't always line up with my schedule, unfortunately. Uh, but I'm on that as much as possible. And um, I have a podcast that I co-host with Alex Kazanis from the One Piece podcast and our friend Scott uh, called Toho Yaro, um, which again is kind of a name <laughs> that we thought was funny that now I'm uh, kind of regretting because it's kind of hard to describe but it's t-o-h-o like the studio and then yarrow y-a-r-o um and that what that is is it's a japanese film club podcast where it's a monthly podcast where uh every month we choose a movie one of the three hosts and then we watch it and we talk about it and we go pretty extensively like through the whole plot and everything and then uh talk about our feelings about it our favorite scenes uh lately we've been doing segments where we uh, where we cast it if we were doing an American remake or <laughs> and talk about uh, give an award to who we think gave the best performance and stuff. So it's a fun podcast. And I feel like in the last like few months, uh, all the uh, 2019 podcasts have been a, a especially good. Uh, so what I would recommend is see if there's a movie you've seen before and and try that out and then maybe try an episode out for a movie that you're interested in, but don't mind spoilers and and see see how you feel about it um yeah so and follow that on itunes and 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 whatnot toho Yaro also has a twitter account that you can follow that posts like news and and stuff about our episodes as well as just any sort of like japanese film stuff that we can find to retweet and stuff mm-hmm. yeah we'll definitely leave links to all those in the show notes as well i personally really enjoy toho Yaro whenever i you know, actually have the chance to listen to it. I haven't listened to it in a while just because I haven't had the chance to watch too many movies lately. Um, I'm I'm actually hoping to uh, to rent Lady Snowblood here soon uh, from Netflix so I can uh, finally watch that and maybe, you know, listen to your guys' episode about it. Yeah, totally. Lady Snowblood or we did a, um, a Lone Wolf and Cub episode too. So both of those would be good for timing because uh, Kazuo Koike just passed away. Sadly. Yeah, I uh, I need to watch all the Lone Wolf and Cub films to kind of you know grieve and then also celebrate his work <laughs> a little. Grieve with some extreme violence. <laughs> I think there's a live action TV series uh, that you can watch on like High Dive or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. yep, they're hour long episodes, um, and uh, I don't think it's the same actor. I don't remember, um, but yeah, check that out. Yeah, I just I just found that recently. I just thought that was a really interesting thing uh, to have licensed or whatnot. But no, yeah, I think I think that's about it then. Uh, Joey, thank you so much for coming on. We'll definitely have to have you on again sometime soon. Yeah, I'd love to. This is fun. Mm-hmm.
That was an awesome discussion with Joey. I really love to hear artists talk about their influences and their process and just what they're a fan of as fans of comics. So I was really, really enthralled by that interview and I can't wait to have Joey on again on the show in a future point. But I think now we are going to discuss what we have been waiting for. We are going to decide once and for all who is the best girl in We Never Learn based on the results of our straw poll leading off of the We Never Learn Q&A extravaganza discussion. And, well, I guess we'll have to start from the bottom up. And this is gonna be a very sad day for all of us. Uh, already, th I think this invalidates the poll. It makes it null and void and completely useless and wrong. <laughs> because at the bottom is Seiki Joe, the objectively best girl is only the last place contender here with only one vote, my vote. <laughs> but Seiki Joe, you will always be number one in my heart, no matter what these fist times say. She was number one. <laughs> yes, indeed. But I guess coming above Seiki Joe is the other category. So... Colton, you put in the poll for people to tweet at us what their other suggestions were. Do you have those? Um, so funny enough, uh, I don't think we got a lot of tweets. I mean, Marion did tweet at us, but, uh, they didn't really make a specific choice. They just kind of suggested other choices, so I don't know if it really counts, but, uh, as, as I'm trying to pull up the tweet, but uh, n nobody really made a specific choice. So, yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I just I, I, I added that in the poll just to see if like anybody would pick any like joke answers. Like I was I was kind of I was kind of half expecting somebody to vote in with Hammy the hamster, but that didn't happen. <laughs> if there was an option to have a write in just on the poll itself, we might have gotten something. I think that the extra step of them tweeting us their answer was probably discouraging or they just easily forgot uh, that that i mean that makes sense yeah uh here i have i have marion here with uh with with their tweet so best girl is utica uh who do i think will probably win uh i don't want to say because uh that would just give it away uh who deserves their own series asumi which you know, I like Asami enough, but I don't know if I would... I don't know if I would uh, watch an entire series about Asami, personally. I would. It would depend on the supporting cast she interacts around, but I think she has the personality to carry it. That's fair. Uh, but anyway, we, sh we should continue on with the poll. Yes, coming in right straight in the middle. Not really that many votes above the other or Seikijo, honestly, but it's Rizu. Rizu got three votes. Okay, I'm, I'm going to take whatever victory I can. <laughs> yes, but getting double of Rizu's votes coming at the number two is Aruka. Mm, makes sense. Uh, honestly, I, I'm i a little surprised she isn't, she isn't the winner. Like, I honestly thought a lot of people liked her. Yeah, I am too. I thought she was the breakout favorite, the easy best girl. But no, because she got less than half 
of the votes of the number one, the winner, which was Buggy's pick at 14 votes, Fumino Furuhashi. Looks like Lit Girl is lit. <laughs> um, that that really legitimately surprises me. Like, I don't know if it's just because like I don't interact with we never learn fandom at all, but like I don't know. I I was surprised to see that so many people voted for Furuhashi in particular. Well, I think that both Fumino and Aruka are definitely up there as two of the more popular characters in Neverland. But it does definitely surprise me that the gap was so wide between them. But I guess there were just a lot of passionate Fumino fans who are listeners to our podcast and wanted to make their voices heard. All right, Buggy, you win. Show's over. <laughs> Though to be fair, I think in North American fandom in general, Fumino is quite popular. I remember her ranking very highly in the North American editions of the popularity polls. So mm, That's fair. All right, but uh, that was another straw poll. Mm-hmm. And we will continue to do these whenever we have fun discussions like this in the future where we want to choose between two things or, like, just have a fun little competition. Or, you know, it, when it's like a manga fight and we actually want to decide the winner of the fight. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess was there anything else we wanted to talk about before we end the show? No, I think that this has been a great episode of Manga Mavericks, continuing in our month-long interview series that we're doing this month. We basically have a new interview with an industry guest every week talking about their manga fandom and the work they're doing. And next week, we have a very awesome and exciting interview with David Brothers, editor at Wiz Media, working on series such as JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, We Never Learn, and Hell's Paradise, Jigoku Raku. And we talk about those series with him alongside a whole bunch of other topics because David's career in comics spans over a decade in a lot of interesting different areas of the comics world from comics journalism to working as a brand manager at Image. There's just so much we talked to David about and I was really happy with how the interview turned out. We had a really long conversation with David. It's an over three hour long podcast, so there is a lot there for you guys to dig into and enjoy, and I'm excited for you all to hear it. Oh boy, yeah. Um, another super long podcast. <laughs> but, you know, it's okay, because uh, these podcasts have been really good, so I don't think length should be a problem. Mm -hmm. These interview podcasts are some of my favorites to do, just talking to people about their fandom and the work they're doing, and I am really happy that we're doing a month dedicated to them, and I'm excited to do more in the future. Um, but until then, you know, you guys can look forward to that, and so, uh, yeah, I guess that's about it for this episode. Um, Lum, where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lum Ramayasha on Twitter, on places like Annualist and Animation Revelation, wherever there's a Lum Ramayasha, that's where you can find me. You can read my reviews of anime, movies, and manga on all-comic.com, and you can support my writing and art by 
donating to my Kofi, Kofi slash Lomomayasha, or my personal Patreon, Patreon slash Lomomayasha. And if you're a fan of the Manga Arts podcast, definitely also keep an eye out for new episodes of the Lum Squad podcast, a podcast I do with AC about Yorisei Yatsura, which comes out every month. And the next episode we have coming up is about the anime, where we do get into a heated discussion at one point about... Uh, Mamoru Oshi that I think you guys will be very keen to hear. So definitely keep an eye out for that dropping later this month. And yeah, just check out my work on Twitter and uh, All Dash Comic and uh, look forward to engaging with you. Mm, uh, I, I'm definitely looking forward to that episode. That sounds pretty interesting. Um, as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323, uh, as well as my other podcasts, such as Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast, which is on a hiatus, but uh, we still have a huge backlog of episodes you can listen to if you're a fan of Gintama over at GintalifeLessons.wordpress.com, or you can listen to One Podcast Prevails at OnePodcastPrevails.com. It's a show I record with my friend Doctor from the Ass Backwards Anime Podcast about Detective Conan, Case Closed whatever people call it. And so, you know, uh, if you're a fan of that series in particular, uh, definitely go listen to that. I really enjoy recording that show in particular. Uh, again, that's at onepodcastprevails.com. Uh, but as for uh, Manga Mavericks and All Comic, uh, you can find every episode of the podcast at all-comic.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron. You know, we, we mentioned earlier, uh, if you subscribe to our $2 tier on Patreon, you will get access to a lot of our podcasts super early. Uh, that also depends on, uh, you know, when we finish editing them and whatnot. But uh, you'll have the chance to listen to certain interviews early. Uh, I know our patrons were uh, lucky to listen to our Joey interview about a week before it was supposed to come out. Um, basically, if you want access to some of our podcasts even earlier, you want to go to patreon.com slash mavericks. But yeah, like I say, you can find every episode at all-comic.com. You can also follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com. That's where we post uh, updates on the show first. And, uh, you know, subscribe to our YouTube channel over at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, we basically post different excerpts of the podcast, such as different news pieces we cover, all of our discussions, retrospectives, and interviews, uh, as well as even some uh, exclusive content every once in a while. Uh, but you should also email us at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Uh, you know, do you have anything you want to say to Joey? Uh, what do you think about his comics? Uh, you know, what do you think about the manga he reads? Uh, do you have any manga that you read that you want us to talk about on the show? Um, you know, just email us anything about the podcast, manga in general, and we'll read it on the show. Again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Uh, but the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever it is. I don't know. Um, that really helps the visibility of our show and really just helps our show grow in general. So uh, definitely go do those things, you know, when you, when you have the time. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, but that's going to be about it for this episode. Um, thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast. Uh, this has been episode 87 of the podcast. And we will see you guys next time for episode 88. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.